This episode of the Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Theo Fattel, Edward Hart, and Brady Turner, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. Welcome to the Forge. Hello, Gamer Nation, and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games' Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and what an amazing show it was last time. Great to have both Sam and Keith back on the show. But tonight, we return to our usual schedule of fun times with you all uh, and your, all of your favourite segments. Now, as a bit of a preview, in diecasting, we'll be using our Thieves tools to unlock the Skullduggery skill. In the Furnace, we return to another fantastic episode on magic as we take you through the process of reimagining the Genesis magic system. In Breaking the Mold, we'll be talking to Chris Markham about his Terranoth Tavern supplement. Can't wait for that. And of course, we'll be answering your games and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, this apprentice would like to introduce you to his master, the wizard who has taught me everything I know, the jelly in my donut, the co-host of this show, it's GM Chris. Chris, how are you going? Well, now I can't stop thinking about jelly donuts. (laughs) I know, right? Thanks. (laughs) Oh, it's good to be back on the air, man. I've been traveling like a fiend for the past couple of weeks. Mm, you have been. I've been watching it uh, on uh, on Facebook with all of your uh, photos and whatever else. Well traveled. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, only mildly internationally. Um, I was in. I mean, I was in Manhattan and then Toronto, um, and then down to Denver. <laughs> wow. Um, so it, it's been uh, it's been interesting. I will tell you though. Okay, and mm-hmm. and God bless all the poor souls who are having to deal with uh the the coronavirus outbreak right now mm. um it's 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 quite worrisome mm. so toronto toronto is obviously a major international airport yep. and as i came to learn after the fact um it is also the pr- one of the primary canadian points of entry for chinese flights mm-hmm. so i walk off the plane from manhattan into the toronto international airport mm. and i flipped out because 90 percent of the airport staff all the security and tsa and the, mm. the, the flight agents and everything else they're all wearing those those surgical hepa masks right and 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 like and surgical gloves mm-hmm. and it's it's like oh my god it's <laughs> some hand sanitizer like, it really it really puts the fear of coronavirus in you i'll tell yeah. you that um, <laughs> It's like an episode of of Outbreak or or, or something like I that. I know it's 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 trippy, but um, yeah. uh, you know. Speaking of of wow, this is going to be a tasteful tasteless segue. Um, <laughs> speaking of outbreaks, Huli. Yes. Um, 
Shall we talk about what's broken out new uh, on the Foundry? I think that sounds like a absolutely fantastic thing to do, and we'll get into that in Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio podcast of the week? I don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to? Why not? I don't want to because I'm... Okay. Um, <laughs> we would be remiss if we didn't highlight one of our favorite actual play podcasts uh, this episode, mm-hmm. Eberron Renewed. And mm. why would we be remiss in not highlighting them? Because this amazing campaign that so many of us have listened to for years has just completed its final arc episode. Mm. Um, The crew actually recorded the entire multi-episode arc at once. They actually broadcast it live, and you can actually go to YouTube and watch all four hours of that final session, which from a podcast standpoint, they broke out into three episodes. Um, And you can see the epic conclusion live with cameras and and emotional reactions and everything else. Mm. Um, But for those of you who are chained to your podcatchers, they just released uh, episode 147, The Nightmare's Dusking, Chapter 3, which is the final episode of the campaign. Mm. Um, so listen, um, and if you've not listened, start. You've got a superb start-to-finish multi-year actual play campaign awaiting you, and trust us, it is well worth it. Mm. And you guys can find this and many more amazing podcasts of gaming and geekery goodness over at d20radio.com. Like, I don't know, Huli, you're 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 a you're a listener to Everon Renewed, I know. Absolutely. I've stopped listening about fifteen episodes ago. Uh, because there was another podcast that I started to listen to as well, and I knew that it was coming up towards its conclusion, so I want to be able to just, um, you know, binge it f- effectively. Um, so I, I don't actually know what's happening, but I know that I've been, uh, you know, watching the uh, their Facebook page and the number of people, especially poor Laura, um, that she's one of the biggest fans of the show, uh, that she's basically devastated that it's all over. So, um, so yeah, but... Looking forward to uh, to listening to uh, to the rest of it, but um, yeah, hopefully, and yeah, it, you know, it's not it's not over. Oh, I mean, the podcast is an ending. Mm. So, what does um, that mean, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> um, it means that they are going to be continuing a brand new Eberron campaign in a different system. Oh, what sort of system would that be? I don't want to steal Eric and the crew's thunder. I really don't. But I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. <laughs> our listeners specifically? I wonder what. <laughs> specifically. I really think they're going to enjoy it. Um, and I've been uh, uh, for a while now actually um, working with Eric and Philip and other uh, – er, like like they need my help. Eric and Philip both are masterful gaming mm. minds, designers and GMs of Herculean proportions. Yep. Um, but so it's not like I've been like – you know, you you guys need my help. It's been like, hey, c- can I help? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, in in doing a lot of um transformation and and creation of the Eberron setting um 
archetypes yeah. and careers, and um, uh, they got some pretty exciting stuff planned. I'm, mm. I'm pretty pleased. And I'm also going to uh, gladly announce, and, and I hope Eric won't stone me for saying this, um, in the interim, before they do that, they're going to have a few episodes where they're going to record and broadcast some one-shots. And mm. they're going to have several people come out to run a one-shot for them. And I am one of those people. Oh. <laughs> I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet. I, I really want it to be Genesis. Yep. Um, and I have an idea in my head, but I kind of have to get them on board with it and see if they have uh, a stomach for it. Right. Um, I want to do Dusters and Dragons. <laughs> All right. You're going to have to explain that a little bit more. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's fantasy, right? So you got your right. orcs and your elves and your, your, your dwarves and your humans and your, your, your halflings and all that. Yep. But it's set in the Wild West. Oh, that sounds cool. That sounds beyond I, cool. <laughs> yeah, I could just like a half orc gunslinger walking, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so I'm. Um, I don't know. We'll 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 see. We'll see what they. Uh, there's a few other ideas we're tossing around. We'll see. What, mm. We'll see what they got the stomach for. But I'm 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 quite excited. Uh, very glad to have them as a part of the D20 Radio Network. Mm, so. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Look okay, well, we, that. should hmm. we get into some of the amazing new content as we open up the foundry and take a look at what's new inside? Right, we should. Now, our first new entry to talk about comes from the aforementioned Keith Kappel, uh, who is still blowing us away with uh, continued content for his Ready Fight Compendium uh, with his second micro-supplement, micro-supplement number two, strangely enough, called Darius Whitaker, and it includes a full detail, or includes the full details for the NPC adversary Darius Whitaker. Uh, he's a boxer with a high fight IQ. Uh, it has an in-depth NPC write-up that provides story hooks and motivations and advice to work Darius into your campaign. Uh, it also uh, brings him to life at the table like uh, nothing I've seen. It's uh, this is this is one of um, I mean it's only the second of his works, but this was probably my favourite out of the two. Um, it gives us a, a brand new talent, sweet science, uh, and a new unarm- unarmed weapon, the defence penetrating hook punch, and uh, it's only a buck, so well worth it. Yeah, I've read it too. It's amazing. Mm. Um, but, you know, the next entry uh, that we're going to talk about is an interesting one um, from first-timers uh, Mikhail Shibilov and I- I- Ivan or Ivan Yakolev. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is called Gollumcraft. Mm-hmm. It is a 20-page supplement mm-hmm. that provides rules and guidance on making the artificial constructs known as golems, you know, controlled by their owner to do his or her bidding. Yep. Uh, with Full rules on created, creating and customizing five different kinds of Gollum templates. One of them is so cool. It's the Gollum Knights. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a specialized war machine uh, mix of vehicle and Gollum that can really spice up a fantasy setting. Uh, it's very, very cool. Mm-hmm. And only four bucks. Nice. Uh, so good job, guys. Very good. And I'm glad you uh, went to the pronunciation of those names. Uh, because, as you know, I'm not very good at it. But anyway. uh, I'm sure I butchered it nonetheless, yeah. <laughs> and uh, next we have the amazing Jason Duff and Jared Williams of Earl, Five, Earl of Fife Games, who brought the excellent modular dark fantasy adventures of Slave to, Slaves to Fate and The Brand. But now they've dropped Fat of the Lamb, their latest 13-page modular adventure, designed for dark fantasy campaigns in Genesis. 
Stuck in a newly built outpost with dwindling stores, the PCs face challenges of survival, hunger and sanity. Now, this adventure pits the characters against themselves as they must fight to survive in this survival horror adventure set far from the comforts of society. Wicked cool, with the usual exceptional art we've come to expect from Earl of Five Games, and it's only $2.99. Um, you know, it's it's great when people provide their own uh, their own artwork, and we'll talk more about that with uh, one of our special guests later. But, um, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic, so go check that out. Yeah, they, they do good stuff. Mm. Um, now, next up, we have the very first Foundry offering. Mm-hmm. From Caleb Smith. Mm. It's called The Survivalist's Guide to Survival. (laughs) Uh, Very tongue-in-cheek, as is the book, but it's filled with amazing content. 20-page supplement, roughly, um, serves those adventurers with the desire to set traps, hone their survival skills, and hunt legendary beasts. Mm. Um, It includes full rules to add traps, uh, four different types, including narrative uh, alternatives for each one, Mm -hmm. uh, new Equipment that actually enhances trap setting, which is going to actually really matters to something we're going to talk about in a bit when we get to uh, diecasting. Mm. Uh, a brand new cunning-focused archetype, uh, new survival and trap-focused talents, and beautifully, amazingly, <laughs> Bigfoot and the Jackalope as beats <laughs> of legend. Um, really fun first-time offering that looks like it will add a lot to your games, mm. uh, and an easy pickup. It's only two ninety-five. Uh, so well done, Caleb. Good, good on you. Absolutely, on you. yeah. I know that uh, he asked me to look over a few stuff as well, um, which uh, he has done a lot of playtesting. So he's obviously taken what we've said on board about playtesting, which uh, which is great. So um, yeah, it's been in the works for quite a number of months. So to uh, to see it finally come into fruition is amazing. So well done, Caleb. Yep. And uh, last up is an expansion set offering from Roy Altman, um, who we also know as RPG Narco, who recently released his Genesis Adversary Cards template. Uh, Now, it's a PDF of professionally designed Adversary Cards uh, in a template form, designed to work as an editable file entirely in Adobe Acrobat Reader, so that you can create custom, beautiful Adversary Cards with nothing more than free software, which is a big, big plus. Now, Roy has recently released his adversary card templates for both Terranoth and Shadow of the Beanstalk as well, so you can cover all of your settings, whether he does something for uh, for Keyforge, we'll obviously, be, we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, very, very cool, and uh, if you can, you know, you can have it in your pocket for only $3.99. Absolutely worth it. It's fantastic. Excellent. And you guys can find these and many more great Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com simply by performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. And while you're surfing the web, why not jump over and become a supporter of The Forge by joining our Patreon? For as little as $2 a month, you can access our dedicated Discord server where you can interact with all of our fellow Forgians. Forgians? (laughs) Well, look... Doctor Who fans are called Whovians and Star Trek fans are called Trekkies. So, look, why can't our fans be called something cool like Forgians? Okay, well, so 
might might need a little bit of work, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, look the the higher tiers. Uh, if you are a forging, I'm going to make it work if it's the last thing I do. Um, they provide priority for your game and rules questions with our largest tier, not only providing you with a special thank you at the top of the show, but also a special monthly get together with either Chris or I to discuss your foundry product or campaign. And some of the stuff we've been getting is pretty damn fine, let me tell you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Of course, no matter how much you can um, spare is appreciated, and all of your donations help the podcast directly so that we can continue providing you with excellent, regular Genesis content. That's right, Gamer Nation. Join the Forge community, become a Forgian. <laughs> Forgy? I, I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't know. Well, no, that's 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 cell phone reception. Four G. I don't. I don't know if I like that. Um, uh, you know, either way, join the community. Become a supporter. <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Um, you know, we we don't have ads on our show, guys. Um, but but it, it is not inexpensive to produce or, or maintain. So uh, your donations, if you enjoy what we do, are incredibly well appreciated. Thank awesome. You. Absolutely. All right. Okay, Chris, are you primed and ready for some serious rules discussions? Damn right I am. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, man, let's get the fire burning. Check out some die casting. Die casting. So the Forge podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table, and the Genesis RPG provides us all with a powerful set of tools to do so, specifically through skills and talents. Our diecasting segment is about closely examining individual skills and individual talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. Last episode, we took a look at the signature spell duo of talents, and we came up with some uh, interesting alternatives to make those talents more versatile. Actually, it wasn't last episode. I guess it was two episodes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and speaking of versatile, however, tonight (laughs) we are going to return to skills uh, with a request from several of our patrons, uh, including Archelis uh, and Scarpy, along with others, who asked us all to take a look at the skullduggery skill. Well, now, aside from being the big skill for scoundrels, thieves, and ne'er-do-wells in Genesis, with obvious uses to conduct devious activities and many other uses that can apply to often divergent characters and can often be used in ways most players and GMs don't consider. So tonight, we're going to get into skullduggery and how you can use it in both creative, raw, and non-raw ways to give it more life into your games. <laughs> All right, let's dive into it and talk about the basics. What What is the skullduggery skill? So the skullduggery skill, um, it's a cunning-based skill, and it's on page 66 of the core rules. And the write-up for it says as follows. Most role-playing games have a long and storied tradition of characters disarming traps, picking locks, and, if those fail, breaking out of prison. In our game, characters perform those activities with the Skullduggery skill. Skullduggery covers a combination of skills your character would use to engage in covert or criminal activity. If you're playing a character you'd consider a thief or a rogue, this is one skill you should pick up. Mm -hmm. Now, Skullduggery is the skill to use to, uh, you know, to deal with nefariousness, uh, physical activity, um, whether it be fighting dirty, um, you know, breaking and entering, pickpocketing, picking locks, disarming traps, searching for holes in security systems, or uh, casing a joint before a criminal endeavor. Now, the entry gives us some solid examples of when to use skullduggery. Mm. Um, 
which are which are pretty basic. I mean, a lot of a lot, the, the, this is a pretty straightforward skill in terms of of the obvious things it can be used for. Mm. Um, the specific examples the core rules give are are picking somebody's pocket, lifting their wallet, mm. okay, mm-hmm. um, picking locks or disabling traps, as well as as well as a lot of people forget setting traps mm. in the first place. Yep, um, it can be used to study a security system. Um, also, the book very clearly says it can be used to distract an opponent through guile or feint, such as, you know, the, the classic, you know, throwing dirt in their eyes during a fight, right? <laughs> also, uh, as, as a callback to our uh, die casting on medicine, mm-hmm. whereas medicine is the skill used to create and craft po- poisons, mm-hmm. skullduggery would be the skill used to administer them, such as surreptitiously slipping an awful poison to someone's food or drink. Mm. Now, what's important to remember, though, is that not all uh, about being a crook or, or scoundrel is about skullduggery. Investigators and law enforcement agents will often have a rank or two in skullduggery uh, to basically to, to fight fire with fire, um, as will rough mercenaries um, and military scouts. Mm-hmm. So the book also gives us some great examples of what skullduggery is not used for, though. <laughs> and they're pretty basic, yeah. but important to note. The first is attempting to sneak into a location unnoticed. While that sounds like skullduggerous activity, and it often is, mm. um, it, it's kind of a fine line because you're not going to use skullduggery for that. You are going to use stealth, which is the specific skill designed to sneak around unnoticed. <laughs> Um, you know, and that activity is really about your agility and your cat-like coordination. Mm. Skullduggery, as you said, Huli, is a cunning-based skill, mm. okay? And, and and you can have a lot of cunning, even if you're a 300-pound meat wall, <laughs> you know, who fights dirty. Yeah. Uh, so so there really is a, a, a fine line, but a very distinct line there between the two skills. Mm. Yeah. What else? What else? Um, so we've got, uh, you know, as you mentioned, attempting to pick someone's uh, pockets or, or uh, you know, for their wallet or their, their magic ring or something like that uh, when the person is um, helplessly incapacitated. This is the difference. If they're, you know, if they're not actively being perceived or whatever else, that's more going to be about not really requiring a skill at all. Or if it's hidden, it's going to be more a perception check. And this comes down to, I think, reinforcement of that that advice that don't make your players make a role when they don't need to. Mm. If there's no threat of consequence, yep. meaning, oh my gosh, they're going to f- uncover me picking their pocket, they shouldn't have to roll. No. It's like, yeah, he's, yeah he's, he's unconscious, he's incapacitated, I take his wallet. Mm. It's like, okay, you take his wallet. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the, the last parts is that your character tries to make a poison. Now, as, um, as Chris mentioned before, um, in the when we were talking about the medicine skill in episode eleven, uh, remember that skullduggery is used to administer the poison. It's not used to create it in the first place. So creating it in the first place is going to be more along the lines of your alchemy skill, um, or in some cases it can also be your medicine skill, depending on what it is that you're trying to do, and and how you're going about doing it. Mm-hmm. So let's take a look in the books really quick and mm. let's talk about if, if for people that are interested in making Skullduggar as characters, I really like talking about any any outstanding choices from a species or archetype standpoint mm-hmm. um, and a career standpoint where they're going to give you a leg up, you know, with either from, a, you know, from, a, from an archetype standpoint, a free rank in Skullduggery, mm-hmm. you know, as, as your, you know, free skill or from a career standpoint, those careers that have Skullduggery on the list of career yeah. skills. Yeah. 
And there's really only one out of uh, all of the the core rulebook, Realms of Terranoth, uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk, and now we can actually even also add uh, the EPG as well. Yes. And that's the trickster from the EPG from from Age of Myth. It's the only one that that gains it as part of its uh, its species ability. So uh, so yeah, it's there's a few that are lacking. I know that that there's quite a number in in Star Wars. Uh, but um, yeah, that's the for Genesis. The trickster is the only one. I'm fine with that. Like in Star Wars, Star Wars is Star Wars. You have yeah. a thousand species. You got to differentiate them somehow, right? Right. But in Genesis, like it's a hard sell for me to say, yeah, your species gives you a free rank in skullduggery. How is that like a like if it's athletics or you know? I mean, it's like I, I can kind of get that. <laughs> But I mean, but then, but then again, I mean, you can make the argument like, well, okay, culturally, this is a common thing, and you know, like, like there, are, there are species or archetypes that might get a free rank in brawl. I've seen that, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, why? Well, because you know, you know, hand to hand combat's a part of their culture. You know, children are trained from a very young age. It's like, yep. oh, okay. Mm. Although an argument could be made where we have something like, uh, you know, the archetypes uh, as opposed to species. So the the archetypes in the core rules where we have like the labor and the intellectual and the aristocrat, um, you know, you could just as easily have a con artist archetype, uh, you know, with a high cunning and perhaps skullduggery or streetwise as their as their bonus skill, or even you know something like um, st- skullduggery, stealth, or, or perception. But you know, I'd certainly do see your point, Chris, that uh, that when you're talking about the species. But, um, you know, the, the, let's not forget archetypes uh, and, um, you know, anyway, something to just keep in mind. But, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad, though. I, I, I don't know. I, I've always been more of a fan of of the free skill rank being something that is more physical in nature as a result of your physiology. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. I don't know. I mean, people disagree with me on that, but that's that's it. Now, when it comes to careers, we've got some strong choices. Mm. The core rule book offers us uh, the entertainer um, mm-hmm. and the scoundrel, mm-hmm. um, as well as the mad scientist mm. and the wizard, interestingly enough, <laughs> uh, which I love. Um, in Realms of Terranoth, we have one uh, career option with scound- with uh, Skullduggery on the list, and that is the scoundrel mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Shadow of the Beanstalk, as expected... Um, for the world of Android, we see two careers with Skullduggery on the list. Mm-hmm. Understandably, the con artist um, and uh, and also the runner. Mm. That's interesting. I'm I'm a little bit confused. When I read that, I was a little bit confused about the mad scientist having Skullduggery. What's oh, the man. story there? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the mad scientist, well, it made sense to me, but... When I think mad scientist, even though that's in the weird war setting, mm-hmm. that's a that's a career to me that represents Frankenstein. Okay, um, so you're somebody who's a grave robber potentially. Ah, right. And, and the mad scientist, it's like science at all costs. So if I'm going to sneak in and steal secrets from somewhere, or you know, I mean, all the pulp stories of the mad scientist who's stuck into the museum to steal the ancient artifact, right? Mm. Or yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I find it quite fitting. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay, that makes more sense. Very good. <laughs> also, also, mm-hmm. the mad scientist's lair is usually a, a riddled with traps. Ah, right. Very good. That makes more sense now. Thanks for that explanation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, as far as talents go, there's uh, there's only three published talents to this point that even remotely deal with with skullduggery. 
and that's Backstab, which is in Realms of Terranoth. It's on page uh, 89. It's a tier 3 talent. Um, it's uh, active with, uh, with an action, non-ranked. And your character may use this talent to attack an unaware adversary using melee light weapons. Uh, a backstab is a melee attack and follows the normal rules for performing a combat check using the character's skullduggery skill instead of their melee light. If the check succeeds, each uncancelled success adds plus two damage instead of the normal plus one. That's crazy. (laughs) Let's break down how amazingly good this talent is, okay? Mm -hmm. It's a tier three, and it should be, but Mm. it's it's sneak attack when you get down to it, right? Mm. It's it's but they they call it backstab. There's no once a session, once an encounter story point. No, (laughs) forever. When you now when when again the the adversary the target has to be unaware of you okay Mm -hmm. but if they are unaware of you you can just attack with a melee light weapon using your skullduggery skill Mm -hmm. oh and if you do your successes (laughs) are going to double their damage your your uncanceled successes I mean that's staggeringly good yeah absolutely um I do have a question about backstab and this is uh, uh, you know probably something that um, you know we should cover at a later episode but with backstab. One of the, as you say, one of the the things is that they the the adversary has to be unaware of them. Yeah. When you're talking about a more narrative system where you don't sort of have you know flanking attacks and stuff like that, like they do in D and D and Pathfinder, where it's more easier to adjudicate, the uh, the uh, the fact of being unaware is obviously going to be something to do with with stealth. So if uh, you know you've made an opposed check. Uh, versus the guard or whatever else. And that's really the only time that you're going to have a situation unless you're invisible. Um, and even then, there is still an opposed check, but the other party basically would have higher difficulty. That uh, That's the only time that you're unaware really comes in into into play. Um, so, uh, so yeah, any thoughts on that, Chris? Well, <clears throat> you, you hit the nail on the head. Hmm. It all comes down to narrative GM adjudication as to whether they're aware or not. Mm. And I got into a bit of an online discussion with somebody about this actually, mm-hmm. where they were basically saying, well, you know, it's fine. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're kicking off initiative with cool, mm-hmm. then, you know, then they're not aware of you. And, you know, that, then, then that first attack is going to be, you know, can use this, this talent. I'm like, no, no. that's not what <laughs> using cool for initiative means at all. Yep. Um, you know, it just means that you're prepared for it to go down. <laughs> That's all it means. You guys could be staring each other in the face mm. and they having a conversation and still use cool to initiate an encounter. It's it's the level of preparedness and readiness for what's about to happen that the party has as to whether cool versus vigilance is used. So that's certainly not it. Mm-hmm. It has to come down to being hidden, you know, be you know not not being aware. And this could be done in a couple ways. I mean, it's up to the GM and the player, but um, having a stealth check would probably be the obvious way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would even entertain a player um, using stealth or even deception uh, in a crowd. You know, mm. that, that classic trope of, you know, there's, there's hundreds of people around and I walk up behind you and shiv you, you know, mm-hmm. in the kidney, you know, at, where I'm using deception or, or stealth to blend in, basically. Mm-hmm. That would be good. But the thing is, typically speaking, once you do this, you're made. 
they know you're there anymore. You can't do it again. Yep. You would have to go through the effort and the corresponding action economy during a structured encounter to try and rehide in mm. order to get this. And it's also worth noting, it's not stupid. It's not overpowered because it has to be done with a melee light weapon. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can do it. It's not like a sniper can do this. Yeah, true. Um, and as we'll get to in a bit, when we were when we were creating some custom talents for Skullduggery, I actually entertained an improved version of Backstab that will allow it to be done with a ranged weapon. Mm. And I did a couple. Uh, I just did a couple quick, you know, like dice rolls with the app to try and test things out. Yep. And very, very quickly, I was like, Nope, nope, way <laughs> too overpowered, way too overpowered. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. I know that there are some rogue talents from uh, from Pathfinder and D anD D, like three point five more than anything, that allow for that sort of thing. But um, honestly, that's when the game starts to break uh, exactly. when you get into that sort of thing. So, um, but you can, um, listen, you can listen to Eberron renewed. Jeff's mm. got like an eleventh level character with like nine or seven or eight ranks in rogue, <laughs> and you know, I mean, he's got these stupid feats and and it's like, oh, I happen to be flanking you, or you know, or I have the advantage for whatever reason. Uh, let me attack you with my base one d eight weapon, and I've I just dealt thirty seven points of damage. It's broken. <laughs> Pretty it's much. ridiculously broken, and I wish I was being hyperbolic. I'm not. That actually happened in this last episode. <laughs> Frequently, it's like thirty seven points of damage, forty two points of damage. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> so it's anyway, crazy. Mm. so after, after after backstab, mm. um, the second the second talent we have to look at is um a little one uh, called Street Fighter. It's from uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk, page 45. It's a tier one, um, active, incidental, non-ranked. When your character disorients or knocks their target prone while making a brawl combat check, and remember, guys, all brawl has um, disorient and knockdown as qualities mm-hmm. for every brawl attack. Yep. They may use this talent to cause the target to suffer wounds equal to your character's ranks in skullduggery. Wow. Dirty little town, isn't it? <laughs> it's 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 insult to injury. Mm, you know, if you if you got if you got three or four ranks in skullduggery, mm. it's like it's like oh yeah, okay, I, I got I got the two advantage. You're you're disoriented now, or you're knock prone, and yeah, I, I just you know kidney punched you for an extra three <laughs> wounds. There you go. Yeah, dude. It's yeah, great. yeah. Or while you're down, they've uh, they've put the boot in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It, it's kicking someone when they're down. That's what it is. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's like you're disoriented, or I just, I just, I just knocked you prone mm-hmm. with knockdown, and yep. literally, it's kicking someone when they're down. That's exactly what the talent <laughs> is. Very flavorful. I love it. It's and it's not monumental damage, but no. by the time you get to four or five ranks in skullduggery, mm. you're going to be such a high earned XP character that I'm sorry, you're this talent should be doing that little mm. benefit to you. Yeah, so. Yeah, it's it's well designed, well balanced, and well costed. I think mm. it's a great talent. Mm. Very very useful for a minions, I would suggest as well. So mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. Now our last talent uh, is Trimath Contact. Now it's uh, and again it's from Shadow of the Beanstalk. It's page forty five, and it's another tier one. Uh, it's passive, non ranked, uh, and it says when you take this talent, your character gains melee or skullduggery, your choice. As a career skill. In addition, once per session, your character may collect a small favor from a member of a single org crime group chosen when you take this talent, even if they do not owe your character a favor. 
I love these talents because of that fact. It sort of uh, it adds in that additional something that you can that that a player can start to generate their own sort of adventure leads without it having to uh, rely on the GM. So uh, you know that that small favor. Well, you know what could it be? Um, and then suddenly, you know, somebody's dragged into uh, to the adventure as far as the the other characters, and, and it just builds on that narrative, which is absolutely fantastic. But it's also um, a, a talent that gives you skullduggery as uh, as a career skill, and that can never go astray as well. I love all of the uh, the tier one talents in Shadow of the Beanstalk for all of those reasons that I just mentioned. So, uh, yeah, great talent. They're, they're, they're great. They're absolutely great. And speaking of Shadow of the Beanstalk, it's actually where you're also going to find, we, we, can't, we can't have this conversation about Skullduggery fully <laughs> without talking about gear, right? No, no. Um, equipment that is used with or enhances Skullduggery in some way. Mm. And interestingly enough, like Shadow of the Beanstalk is where it's at for the most part. Mm-hmm. We, we, really, we really only have two pieces of gear, sadly, in the entire system that deal with skullduggery. I, I see this as a huge gaping hole for any of you aspiring writers out there <laughs> um, wanting to add some new content to the foundry. <laughs> the first is obviously thieves' tools. Um, now, this is in the core rulebook on page 146. It's also cloned as thieves' tools in uh, Realms of Terranoth, page 101, uh, and it's the exact same stats. Um, and it, it, it's a collection of lockpicks, files, wires, and oil in a small leather pouch, um, which obviously provides the right tools for the job when it comes to, you know, Skullduggery checks. Mm-hmm. But so in addition to that, I love this, provides an automatic advantage to your Skullduggery check results when attempting to open a lock or a latch. Very cool. Um, so I, I absolutely love that. Um, as I said, it's in the core rule book. It's cloned as uh, again in, in Realms of Terranoth. And it's actually same stats reskinned as lockpick set mm-hmm. in Shadow of the Beanstalk, page 97 for your, your Android setting. Very um, good. But it's the exact same stat lock. Mm. Uh, And along the same sort of lines, we then have the Lock Breaker, which is again from Shadow of the Beanstalk, page 97. Uh, And it's uh, it's a modular electronic lockpicking device used for electronic locks. So key card locks, time locks, uh, keypad or combination locks, etc. It acts as the right tools for the job for electronic locks, but also provides an automatic double success to skullduggery checks to open electronic locks or latches. Which is cool. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a very it's a very Android thing because obviously yeah. it only works on electronic locks, right? Yeah. 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 Um, which is what all locks really should be in Android. Yeah, absolutely. But and it's it's pricey. It's not cheap. <laughs> you know, free double success added to your results. How can you go wrong with that? Exactly. That's just nuts. <laughs> I know. Now, Huli, one of the things that as we've gone through, we've gone through gear and talents and, and all this stuff, we've gone through the skill itself. One of the things that the books don't really talk about mm-hmm. um, in any concrete ways, and maybe we can give some good recommendations on like we want to do, mm-hmm. is how to – maybe some recommendations or ideas for spending advantage, threat, triumph, uh, and despair mm. with skuggery checks. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at advantages first up. So an advantage can be used to, you know, decrease the time needed to perform a skullduggerous task. So, mm. you know, if it uh, if the GM says that, well, it's going to take three rounds to uh, to pick a lock or or wait for, as we mentioned with the lockbreaker, that it's going to take, you know, x number of time, x number of rounds to uh, for it to work. Advantages can actually bring down that time. So, uh, so that's a, a great way to use advantages. 
with triumphs, now this could be a major success of unexpected proportions, um, you know, such as being able to to craft a key for a lock um, for for later use, or or leaving zero signs of passage, maybe even, you know, relocking a door behind you so that as it closes, it's as though that, you know, you were never there. Um, so uh, that's that's a really cool use of a triumph, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. But what about threats and despairs? Oh, man, this is where the fun stuff comes in, especially <laughs> with Skullduggery. Yeah. So so threats for Skullduggery, this shouldn't be too hard. There, there's an obvious one, actually, and you can borrow it from the recommended uh, uh, threat usage for combat. Mm-hmm. Um, this is stressful work, mm. all right? Cracking a safe, cutting through a security system, picking a lock. This this is is stressful, stressful work. So obviously, I mean, threat can, and I've done this, threat can be used to make the character suffer strain. Mm -hmm. It also, uh, higher numbers of threat, you know, uh, two or three threat could be used to to damage any tools that are used by a step. Mm -hmm. Or my personal favorite, (laughs) leave a sign of tampering, Mm -hmm. right? So you, you did it, but... People can tell that you did it. <laughs> now, with with despair, it, I think it's a little different whether you succeeded with the despair or whether you failed with the despair. Yeah. If you succeeded, this can be really useful to to leave behind clear clear signs of tampering, mm. um, or better yet, clues as to who did the tampering. <laughs> you know, your 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 roguish skullduggerous character accidentally drops something in the process. Right. 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 Um, I, I love that. Now. On a failure, you can get really good with this uh, on a despair because uh, guess what? You just tripped an alarm mm. or, you know, that's now glaring, blaring. Or, gosh, a nearby guard could patrol just happened around the corner and see you um, <laughs> in, in the process of doing this. Quite frankly, you could use uh, those despair results for success, too. Mm. It's like, mm. okay, you got through the door, but now the alarms are blaring, right? Yep. But, yeah, dude, I, I I love those kinds of results on on Skullduggery because you're, you're doing something – crappy anyway right <laughs> you're you're doing something you, you don't want to get caught doing yeah and despair means guess what you just got caught <laughs> you you may, you may still have succeeded oh i got his wallet mm. but he saw me doing it yep. um you know well, I, actually i probably wouldn't enforce that because you don't want the despair result to negate the success right yep. right um so maybe he didn't catch me doing it but around after i make with the wallet he notices it's gone okay <laughs> yeah and starts tearing the who took my wire? okay and stuff like that. But yeah, these are these are cool options. These are these are these are very very good options. Mm. Very good options. Yeah. One of the things that that I've done in my games in the past is with threat is that you save it up. Um. So if you've got if they're breaking into whatever like a, a large complex or something like that, and they, you know that they have to go through certain areas um and do certain things such as you know using this stealth using skullduggery and whatever else, is that if they're building up threat, there is nothing better, in my opinion, when they uh, they say, okay, well, I've rolled two threat. Okay, no worries, thanks. Or what are you going to do with that? Oh, nothing. It's all good. Thanks. And you just hey. mark it on your paper. <laughs> I, 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 I know exactly what you mean. So are you familiar with uh, an RPG called Blades in the Dark? I am. Great okay. game. Absolutely unbelievable game. And and for those of you who want a real scoundrelly a, a game where all the heroes are scoundrels, literally, yeah. that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's phenomenal. And John Harper, who wrote it, is actually one of my RPG heroes. Mm-hmm. He created Lasers and Feelings and Lady Blackbird and, and several other like micro RPG one shots that have been loves of mine for a very long time. Yep. Yep. Anyway, in that game, they have a mechanic uh, called clocks. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
where if the, if the party needs to needs to do a task or if they're facing discovery or threat, the GM puts a clock and it's a circle with segments in it like a pie. Mm-hmm. And depending on, on how things are, it might be a shallow clock like with only four segments. Mm-hmm. It might have, you know, eight or ten segments in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can set a clock for like being noticed by the guards. And it, as they roll consequences, it ticks off areas in the clock. And when the clock's full and all the segments have been ticked, Oh boy, you've just been noticed, right? <laughs> so a great, a great suggestion I have for that use of threat mm-hmm. is to just tally it like you're tallying one of these clocks where it's like, okay, you know, th- this is a pretty, it's not a heavily guarded facility that you're trying to break into, mm-hmm. but there is some security and they do patrols. We're going to set this as a uh, six segments or, or eight segments mm-hmm. and every threat that's rolled ticks off a segment. <laughs> And it's one of the things, it's like, oh, you finally hit enough. Oh, boy, you've been noticed. Mm. And if you look at one of the tones that they have in the EPG, uses a very similar mechanic, but they're only using it for despairs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can, uh, I think it's the, the heat mechanic, uh, yeah. which uh, we talked to uh, to Sam and Keith about. And uh, I think it was Jason Marker who, uh, who came up with, uh, with that mechanic, and it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, so, but you can also add your thread in there as well if you want to say that, you know, for every six threat, that's the equivalent of a despair as well. Uh, so you can really increase the tension at your table by, uh, by adding that mechanic in there for anything really. So, especially when there's, as you say, Chris, as, as the time frame uh, that, yeah. uh, that builds that tension. So, yeah. Hmm. Interesting stuff. So as Kusuli, since we've been talking about some, I guess, non-traditional or non-standard mm-hmm. ways already to to utilize threat and despair for skullduggery results, mm-hmm. let's transition into into my favorite part of this segment, which is non-standard and also non-raw uses for the skullduggery skill itself. Mm. Well, one thing that I've seen used, and and it's uh, although it's not specifically called out, um, but it is a holdover from from Star Wars. Uh, most narrative GMs will totally allow skullduggery for the, you know, overall casing of a building or, or planning a criminal enterprise. So if you have something like your Ocean's Eleven uh, that, uh, you know, you're uh, they're setting up, making sure that everything's um, right and, and learning about how many guards are at what places uh, at what times – Skullduggery is a great use for that. What What's your thoughts on that? Oh no, yeah, it's it's perfect. I I, I allow skullduggery for that all the time. Mm. I, I actually not too long ago ran a skill challenge where they were going to do a breaking and entering, and uh, they they decided they wanted to case the joint beforehand. And it was like mm. one guy was like, "I want to use perception." I'm like, "Sure." Um, another guy was like, "I want to use skullduggery." I'm like, you know, to to case the joint," and I'm mm. like, "Absolutely." Mm. And and it was it was a primary skill. It, well, it didn't even increase difficulty. It, it made total sense. Yep. So I love that. I love it now. On the flip side, Huli, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, whereas skullduggery can be a meta skill that's used to, to plan a criminal act, yep. it can also be used to, on the other side of the coin, to investigate a crime. Mm. Um, and I, I hinted at this before, but an investigator or a detective is well within their purview to ask the GM to use th- their skullduggery skill to review a crime scene after the fact, mm-hmm. uh, especially specifically when when breaking and entering was involved. Yeah. Uh, understanding how a criminal did something, mm-hmm. what points of entry they used, you know, uh, what what holes in the security system they found um, after the fact. Totally, you can use skullduggery for that. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, uh, maybe not necessarily finding, but analyzing 
crime-related clues that could be under the Skullduggery banner. Um, so, for example, if I find some discarded lockpicks on the floor, hmm. I would totally, as a GM, be like, yeah, well, give me a Skullduggery check to find out who made them, where they come from, you know, uh, you know, th- things like that. Um, or if there's thieves tools of any kind left behind or a glass cutting rig or something like that, I, mm. I would totally allow that to, to analyze those types of criminal clues. So yeah. To speak. And that's where triumphs can come in as well, that uh, if you're using it in that way to actually identify the modus operandi or MO, as many people will know it of a particular criminal or particular criminal organization, you know, two triumphs may, you know, who exactly that person is. Who's done that? Uh, so, you know, there's obviously crime gangs and whatever else have certain ways of doing that as they're, as they're teaching their, uh, their younger students, if you want to call it that, uh, on how to break into houses, how to perform these, uh, these tasks, that then you're using those triumphs to then help you move those, as you said, Chris, before with, with um, clues to uh, to move them in that direction so that they know exactly who what is the next lead that they have to uh, to carry on with. Yeah. And as we're making that recommendation guys, we're not saying that skullduggery is the only skill that can be used for that. Mm. It's just saying it it can be. Especially if your setting has like a the equivalent of a knowledge underworld, okay? Mm-hmm. Or or especially when it comes to clue analyzation like a, like a knowledge skill around science. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that can be used as well. And holy the example you just mentioned of, you know, well whose calling card is this or what gang perpetrated this. Yep. Uh, an appropriate knowledge skill could do just as good. Mm. But skullduggery, why not? Mm. Cuz I think that in that sort of a circumstance the a, a knowledge check would be more along the lines of uh, you learn more about how it's been done, um, which could then lead into, uh, you know, going into do additional research or, or something like that, or even perception in that case. But because Skaldaggery is very much a criminal sort of, um, has a criminal bent to it, it's more along the lines of you know who would be doing that sort of thing rather than uh, the others. But um, So it, it p- depends on what sort of skill that you're using, what the results will be. Uh, and from a narrative perspective, that's something that you've also got to look at as well. Another one is military camp and placements. Now, this might sound a little bit odd, but military scouts are often uh, tasked with not only keeping a watchful eye, but setting up a defense and warning emplacements throughout a camp. In Star Wars, we do have uh, the knowledge tactic skill, which is used in a lot of military-style campaigns, and it was introduced in um, in Age of Rebellion. But Skullduggery, in this case, it's more of the skill used to, to set traps, uh, which includes tripwires and, and deadfalls and other tools of your, you know, your devious scout in the wild. So, you know, if you've got somebody like um, good old Arnie in, uh, in Predator setting up all of those traps for the predator when, uh, you know, after he'd fallen down into the mud and was covered in, and whatever else, that uh, that Skulldrunker would be used for, for doing that so that he could be safe and be setting all of these traps around him so that it's going to get set off very, very quickly. Uh, this, can, this can also be useful for, uh, for a hunter, for example, um, when they're, they're trapping prey or, or trapping, you know, their, their next meal um, or for your people who are big game hunters for, for things like that. Uh, it's a very useful thing for any sort of survivalist, um, you know, for their bag of tricks, I guess. 
And I know that, uh, you know, there's an entire supplement now which is available on Foundry uh, with regards to survivalists that some of those elements can be used uh, using skullduggery instead of survival. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I, for, for anyone who's ever done any hunting or trapping, like setting snares is hard. Mm. Okay. <laughs> it's hard and it's challenging. And that's, that's skullduggery. It's setting a trap. It's what mm. it is. Mm. So very, very interesting. Um, I, I would even, I would even let, although honestly, this is more, I mean, that's the thing too. Like you could use it. I mean, survival is going to be the de facto skill, obviously yeah. for trapping. But if somebody said, yeah, I'm, I'm in the wilderness and I happen to be a scoundrel and I'm hungry and I want to set a snare, I would let them use skullduggery. Mm. Not an issue. Because I know that some people sort of suggest that kobold stats, for example, should have all about survival. Um, not necessarily. So, you know, maybe it is more to do with uh, with uh, skullduggery. Uh, I, look, uh, it depends on, on what sort of kobold you've got, I guess. But, uh, but yeah. Yeah, it makes, makes total sense to me. Mm. Now, there are two more things that, are, that I think that we've forgotten about and I'd like to cover off on, and, and that's forgery and disguises. Now, both are clearly part of any criminal enterprise, but one is skullduggery and the other one isn't. Now, let me explain that. Firstly, let's talk about forgery. So making forgeries, whether it be paintings or checks or passports or any sort of ID or anything that is a copy of something, or is intended to act in the place of something, is created using the skullduggery skill. Making like uh, a van look like a delivery truck, you know, with stickers and whatever else on the side of the vehicle, um, or even creating false registration plates are all uses of the skullduggery skill. But one thing that I know that both players and GMs mix up is using skullduggery for disguises. Now, that might be the case for, like, making a disguise kit. Uh, That's certainly skullduggery. But actually using a disguise to trick someone to making them think you aren't who you actually are, such as, you know, pulling a con or trying to get through disguised as, you know, the the commander of a base or, or something like that, that is not the use of the skullduggery skill. Instead, that's the use of the deception skill. Now, I know that players have spoken to me in the past about whether skullduggery could be used to apply makeup or whatever else. And you know what? Look, I've I've let that go. Uh, But realistically, deception is the skill to use disguises and things like that. But, um, you know, at at a pinch, skullduggery could be used to assist someone um, when they're actually, uh, you know, putting on the uh, the disguise. Absolutely. So, okay, now that we've talked about these sort of expanded raw uses, let's talk about the non-raw uses. Mm. Because, and, and of course, the easiest non-raw use <laughs> of the skullduggery skill is, once again, our friend, custom talents. Mm. Now, Huli, as you mentioned earlier, there's only three talents spread across only two books um, <laughs> in the system that, that deal with skullduggery at all mm. or even remotely relate to it. Yeah. Uh, so, so as we do, we have taken a stab at some new talents um, and we're eager to uh, – and, and Huli, uh, I'm, 
I'm assuming they can find these talents at uh, ForgeGenesis.com, right? Yes, they can. You can uh, download that under our resources section. Uh, I know I'm a little bit behind in regards to that, but uh, I am slightly catching up. So uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll wait until the end of this episode and we'll get a lot of the magic stuff up that, uh, that a lot of people are asking for. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can download that at uh, ForgeGenesis.com. Awesome. So Huli and I have taken a stab at creating four new talents for those cunning and conniving scoundrels in your mm. Genesis game. Yep. Um, and I, I love all these. What, what do we got, man? What do we got? All right. So our first one is called Crooked Fingers. Now, it's a, a tier one. It uh, has a passive activation, uh, and it's non-ranked. Your character never needs specific tools, equipment, or other gear to perform a skullduggery check. They are always considered to have the right tools for the job. Now, this is a really simple and easy talent designed to give some teeth to a scoundrel uh, who can fashion whatever they need from anything at hand. Um, So, uh, you know, whether you're um, uh, pulling out a hairpin and using that uh, instead of uh, your thieves' tools, this is the talent for you. Uh, You know, it's great for breaking out of a prison cell, for example. (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm uh, I'm thinking of uh, of the character from uh, the Last Jedi. <laughs> you could pretty much have this talent, I think. Uh, uh, DJ, uh, that uh, that yeah, I think that that would be the very appropriate skill for for talent for him. I, I absolutely agree. It's, it's a really good talent. Mm. I love it. Now it is our only tier one. We're now going to move into some higher tier territory here. Yep, yep. Um, and the next one we've got for you is improved quick strike mm. i love the quick strike talent mm-hmm. um i absolutely love it and 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 i i love doing improved versions of existing talents and i, I think this is a good reward for the roguey character yep. um and and i really wanted to provide in addition to backstab another good combative addition for skullduggery so mm. improved quick strike is a tier three talent mm. it has passive activation it is non-ranked your character must have purchased at least one rank of the Quick Strike talent to benefit from this talent. Obviously, mm-hmm. it is improved Quick Strike. Yep. When your character makes a combat check against a target that has not taken their turn yet in the current encounter, they add damage to their attack equal to their ranks in Skullduggery. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to the normal effects of Quick Strike. Now, when creating this, unlike Backstab... We, we, although it is really, honestly, it's it's just about as limited. You're really only going to get to pull this off once, right? Right. Uh, Except for very unusual circumstances. You know, so you're really only going to get to pull it off once. Mm. But it's one of those things that, you know, hey, here's an extra three damage. In, in addition to the normal effects of quick strike, you know, mm. or if you're really high up their character with four or five ranks, yeah, it can it can add a lot, but it adds a bit more of a punch to quick strike, mm. um, which you know, hey, those boost dice are going to be ideally adding more damage anyway with extra successes, right? Mm-hmm. But this is just a, another great punch. I thought it was pretty well costed at tier three. Mm. I'd be interested to see how that works from a playtest perspective with something like Street Fighter. Uh, where, um, you know, if somebody came in straight off uh, before any anybody acted uh, with a brawl attack, um, that uh, that you're adding even more damage to uh, to the hit. It depends on whether they're aware of you or not. Yeah. Then not, yep. that, that's, that's the big differentiator. Mm. Because Quick Strike works if they're aware of you or not. It doesn't matter. It's just they haven't had the chance to act yet. Yep. 
Exactly. Whereas backstab, which I think, quite frankly, is a bit more powerful of a talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, backstab, uh, I mean, considering the sheer amount of damage increase it does, mm. um, you know, backstab, I think, is a, has a bit of harder of a condition, quite frankly. Mm. But what, what I'm talking about there is Street Fighter. But basically, that says that... Oh, um, right. yeah. oh sorry, Street Fighter. Yeah. So uh, when that happens, um, when they use the talent, it causes their target to suffer uh, wounds equal to your character's rank in skullduggery as well. So when when, um, when they knock prone or disorient. Yeah, yes. yeah. So uh, you know if you've grabbed enough advantages from that check, yeah, that could um, pose a, a, a quite a potent threat. But again, it's only going to happen in the first round. But it could certainly um, speed up combat, <laughs> which we'll we'll get into a question about that later on down the track uh, when we talk about uh, our questions and answers. But uh, but yeah, you know, and you're you're right. But the other thing too is also consider that with Street Fighter, mm. it's brawl, it's brawl exclusively. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about the the lowest base damage in the game. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're unless you're using Ready Fight. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, in, in terms of in terms of just the core rules, it is the lowest base damage in the game. So yeah, yeah you 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 want to you, you spend the XP on both those talents, hmm. and you get to pull that off once a turn if you if you manage to generate enough advantage <laughs> to do a uh, uh, knockdown or disorient. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> Indeed. So our third talent is called Trap Master. So it's a tier three. It's an active incidental activation, uh, and it's a non-ranked talent. Now, this talent is really designed to to cater for the trap-loving PCs, and it really serves, uh, you know, an underutilized aspect of skullduggery, namely setting traps. So, the wording of the talent is: when your character makes a skullduggery check to successfully disable a trap, they may also choose to disassemble and collect the trap. Collected traps may be set by the character as if they had purchased the trap or the trap materials. Uh, per GM's discretion, some traps, such as very large mechanisms or traps built into buildings or the environment, may not be able to be disassembled and collected. So, yeah, if you want a way to make that trap portable um, so that you can then use it on the bad guys when they're chasing you, Great talent to have. Great talent. It's not always going to work for me. It's like, you know, hey guys, I uh, <clears throat> I disassembled the deadfall trap. It's in my it's in my pouch. <laughs> no, no, okay, but but yeah, for that 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 poison acid spray that's going to come out of the door, or that uh, that blow dart, you know, that's going to shoot me in the eye when I cross this tripwire. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I think it's cool. Indeed. And what about our last talent, Chris? Love this one. Sorted reputation. Mm. Tier three. Uh, activation active incidental non-ranked wording is this once per session your character may use their skullduggery skill in place of a social skill when dealing with criminal or underworld figures additionally the character may spend three advantage or triumph to have the target of the check offer to employ them on a job where the addition of their skills would benefit. Mm. Talents like it's like you were saying earlier with the with the Shadow of the Beanstalk talents, really. Mm-hmm. Talents that add a narrative element, I, I just love. They yeah. can provide a lot of extra flavor to the session. Mm-hmm. And and this talent is very much in that vein. Mm. You know, as a tier three talent, it allows the character to have gained some experience and notoriety with their abilities before they could add it to their bag of tricks, which mm. is another important thing I really like. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like we were talking about earlier with uh, Trimaf 
have contact, yep. you know, mm. it, it has that cool narrative addition, yep. right? Mm. Yeah. It's just, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. I, I, I really like it. Mm. Very good. One of the things there, and I know that this sort of is moving away from talents, but I was just thinking about how would you go about, and we're doing this completely on the fly. So how would you do something like Caltrops, which is a common thieves, like getaway piece of equipment? How would you sure. actually do that? Um, one of the thoughts that I've, I've, I've thought about would be that um, when they use uh, a Caltrop, that it makes everything within short range um, difficult terrain unless the character takes their skullduggery skill in, in wounds um, if they want to move it through like um, normally. Otherwise, it's, uh, it's classified as difficult terrain as they tr- sort of tiptoe around the, uh, uh, the Caltrops itself. What's your thoughts on that? I wouldn't base it on the skullduggery skill. Okay. Think about, okay, there's, there's two, there's two ways. I've been thinking about this, actually. Mm-hmm. There's two ways mm-hmm. to handle Caltrops, okay? Mm-hmm. And there's different methods you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, for mm-hmm. those still inert in the world of D&D, Caltrops <laughs> are an annoyance. Yes. They're, they're, they're a nuisance. I would never have them deal damage, mm-hmm. okay? Okay. What, what I would say is that they, they can be scattered out um, to encompass an area of like short range. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just makes it difficult terrain right. straight up. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. it's not like a babbling brook or like rocky shale. It's, it's annoying difficult terrain. So there has to be a way to clear it. So mm-hmm. I would make them very inexpensive. Mm-hmm. But the, the write-up I would do would be that a person moving through a caltrop difficult terrain uh, can attempt a coordination check to ignore the difficult terrain, but that coordination check is opposed by the character who threw the Caltrops skullduggery. Mm, that's a better way of doing it. Now, that's one avenue if you want to treat Caltrops as the minor minor annoyance. Yep. If you want to make them, and I, consequently, I would make them more expensive mm-hmm. um, and 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 like one-time use as well. It would be like limited ammo one. Right. You know, unless you uh, unless you want to take 10 minutes to kind of gather them all up after the combat the way you could uh, an arrow or a knife. I mean, right. that would be fine. Yep. If you're going to do that, I wouldn't make it out to short range. That's that's staggeringly OP. Mm-hmm. I would make it into an area like engaged, you know, and it's kind of it's kind of hard to define that. But I would say, you know, within the current range band, basically. Right. Um, and at that point, I might say, uh, you know, it, it's difficult to rain. Um, anyone moving through it also suffers wounds equal to, you know, I, I don't even then I don't know if it would go. I mean, you could go with the character's rank and skullduggery. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I would say un, unless they make an opposed, you know, coordination check. Yeah. But I'm, I'm a huge fan of simple. So mm. yep. <laughs> I, I go for cheap and it's difficult terrain. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, then I guess you could always create a talent that allows um, someone to, if, if that's like the, the key thing that they do. Uh, that you can have Caltrop Master or something crazy like that, uh, and then and then it's like, and you could have a series of talents that increase the the range that you can do it mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. that allow you to throw them a distance away before they land, yep. or straight up start doing damage to people that walk through them. Yeah, yeah, love, love, love that idea. Cool, very, very good, awesome. And if you have Caltrops do damage, mm. they need to have at least Pierce one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you can also use Lego in uh, instead or D4s. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> standing on Lego at night when you don't see it, it's painful. Anyway, anybody who has children know exactly what I'm talking about. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So, look, if you have – for any of our listeners, if you have – 
an idea that you'd like to talk, uh, like us to be talking about on the show uh, in this specific segment, uh, whether it be a skill or a talent you'd like us to delve into um, and explore even further, let us know. Send us an email uh, and uh, or, or post it up on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you as well. Absolutely. So, Holy, I think it's time. Yes. I've been waiting for this and dreading it all at the same time. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, to, to pump the bellows and heat things up magically mm. as we uh, open up the furnace. The Furnace. And welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Tonight, we're going to continue with what will become our five-part discussion. Uh, I, on... I think it's going to be closer to six, I think. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, in regards to the magic system in Genesis. Now, we first covered the bare bones of magic in episode eight, Demystifying the Mystical Part One. And we continued that discussion in episode 10, Demystifying the Mystical Two, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, and after uh, you understood all of that, we finally began tackling the reskinning of the magic system entirely with episode 12, Demystifying the Mystical 3, Beyond Thunderdome. Uh, in that last episode in the magic series, we walked through the basic tenets of reskinning the magic system by creating a reskin of our own live on the air with a new system for post-apocalyptic mutations. <laughs> and in that episode, we talked about and, and walked through the first steps of the magic reskin mm. uh, per our process. Step one, roughing out the concept. Two, defining the skills. And three, defining your spells and talents. And we did this through the lens of, as you said, our post-apocalyptic mutation system, mm. uh, putting our advice into practice for you all. But tonight, we are going to tackle step four of the reskin process, detailing your spells. Step three was defining them. This is about detailing them. Mm. This step can be the hairiest <laughs> and require, honestly, the most work on the part of the designer, mm -hmm. but most also consider it to be the most fun. Mm. Uh, so Huli and I thought it would be really best if we just devoted a whole episode to it. Mm. Um, and and uh, yeah. 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 Now, as a continual reminder, as Chris said, we spent three whole episodes talking about how magic works and then beginning our reskin task. As such, it goes without saying that before you listen to this episode, you really need to have listened to episodes eight, episodes 10, and episodes 12 to make sense of much of what we're going to cover tonight. And of course, the logic behind our decisions. We're going to proceed assuming that you've already got those episodes under your belt and pick up right where episode 12 left off. Now, if you haven't caught up, just pause this episode and go and re-listen. And yes, we'll wait. Are you done yet? You have? Great. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's dive into this topic and continue with our rescan because we've got a lot to do. Mm. Um, as I said, this is perhaps the most detail written part of the reskin process. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of writing here, guys. <laughs> so, but yes, so. Uh, I think, I think honestly though, we, we should start with a boilerplate, um, that we had last episode too. And I'm going to say it again because it's so damn important. Mm. Play test, play test, play test. We said this in episode 12. I'm going to say it again. Mm. 
when you get when when we get into the actual creation of this new reskin system based on Genesis Magic, you guys have to realize as you're reading this on our website or as you're listening to it on the podcast, we are creating a draft. All right. This means that the post-apocalyptic mutation systems we are creating live, as wonderful an example and teaching tool that is, is not ready to be played yet or guaranteed to be fit for a public table because we have not had the opportunity, understandably, because it's not built yet, mm-hmm. to play test anything, okay? More than anything else, such deep new systems like a magic reskin must be play tested out the wazoo <laughs> as much as you can manage this is non-negotiable, people. Non-negotiable. So keep in mind that this huge multi-episode creation effort will still hinge on ultimate refinements and changes that have to come after playtesting. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's review what we've talked about first. So back in episode 10, we began the process of a fresh new reskin, turning magic into a post-apocalyptic mutations. Uh, we went through the first three steps, which is step one, uh, it was to rough out your concept. We define the mutations as our core, uh, the the sources of these powers and where they came from um, is obviously mutations. The, the effects of these powers would be fairly broad, but we decided what they would be. Uh, they would be both obvious and invisible to the naked eye. In, in other words, psychic powers and other barely perceptible mutations, as well as extreme mutations uh, in the physical sense that border on terrifying. Mm-hmm. Step two, we defined our skills. Um, our power source might just be one, which is mutation, yes, and that is a single power source. But honestly, for our post-apocalyptic setting, these mutations should be fairly common, at least common for our heroes. Mm. We're going to expect at least half the party to have these abilities in some form or fashion in this post-apocalyptic setting. Mm. Now, based on that fact that this is not going to be a rare thing and we expect half the party to have such abilities, <laughs> we, if you'll recall, Huli decided on three skills. Mm. Um, the first was psionics based on presence, which is psychic powers, straight up. Your, your, bra- your brain has been mutated, okay? Um, we then decided on metabolics based mm-hmm. on willpower. Um, and metabolics is just a pseudo word to kind of get the point across. These are mutations of the body that directly impact the body's functions in an enhanced fashion. This would be the, the extreme physical mutations that enhance what the body already does anyway mm. you know you can you can run this makes you run faster your body is strong this makes you stronger mm. okay mm-hmm. um which mm-hmm. is very different from the third mutation power skill that we came up with mm. which is aberrantics mm. um uh based on cunning totally made up word based <laughs> off the word aberrant but these are the these are the the subtle and extreme physical mutations that are just flat out weird to accomplish weird things. Um, mutations of the body that provide entirely new abilities, not enhancements of existing capabilities. Um, you know, metabolics is cool, but it's never going to let you breathe underwater or fire porcupine quills from your <laughs> spine, okay, or, or, or glow with bioluminescence. You know, these are things mm. that are totally unnatural. Yeah. They're not like evolution or enhancement of what we can already do. They are brand new 
mm. weird things. And mm. that's what aberrantics covers. Yeah. So step three is to define your spells and talents. Now, from the key effects we identified in step one, we settled on some more concrete effects to use. We have attacking, which is causing damage without using a weapon, uh, maybe with psychic powers, for example, or something physical, but still weird like acid vomit, uh, as Chris mentioned before, porcupine-like spines, or, uh, or blasts of radiation, etc. We had telekinesis, which is the obvious, moving things with your mind, uh, improved durability and or defense. Improved physical and or mental abilities, such as like super strength or super intelligence. Look at the big brain on Brett, for example. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, super fast healing as well. The last of those was survivability in strange circumstances. So it's going to be things like breathing toxic atmosphere normally. So, you know, you can go into some sort of an area which has been restricted because of of all of the, the toxic Uh, gases in the area and you can create uh, the means to be able to walk in there in the first place without being affected radiation immunity uh, and also amphibious breathing from that we immediately identified things that were um, you know were all good candidates to be broken up into spells and we did this kind of at at a high level Uh, We categorized our uh, spell-worthy effects into specific spell actions. And some of those you'll be familiar with already. So we had block, and this will be similar to barrier. And uh, it's about improving your your durability or your defense. The skills that we decided to use for block were going to be psionics and metabolics. We then had enhance, which is similar to augment. uh, And this is about improved physical and or mental abilities. Uh, We decided that metabolics was the best skill for that. We then have strike, uh, and this will cover all of our attack actions. And we decided that psionics was obvious and aberrantics was the other. We then had survive. Now, here's one we'll make entirely new from scratch. um, And it will likely be unique to the post-apocalyptic setting as well. Mutations that increase your survivability in unusual circumstances. So, in other words, on-the-fly adaptations. Uh, We decided that the skills for this were going to be aberrantics and metabolics. Our second last one is telekinesis. And, you know, let's borrow a page from episode 8, where we already created the telekinesis spell. In this case, it's going to be totally fitting for what we need for the mutation powers, and it's less work for us. So we decided that uh, the skill to use for that was obviously going to be psionics. And then the last, the, the last ability that we had was going to be weird, which we felt was fitting for everything, everything else, should I say. So mutations that are awfully, often going to provide a host of small but beneficial talents in weird and strange circumstances. So, you know, it's going to be the utility spell, basically. Um, and the skill we decided for that, just due to how we described it, was going to be aberrantics. Yeah. Now, what I loved about this was how balanced we made it. Mm. Each skill has three of these six spells that they can access. Mm-hmm. And each skill also has a unique spell that only it can do. Yep. So I, I absolutely love that. And also, we fleshed out step three at the end of, of episode 12, uh, with simply coming up with a much better name than spells, because we obviously <laughs> need to change that for this particular uh, uh, reskin. Mm-hmm. And we simply settled on 
powers. Yeah. So that's what we're going to call it going forward, these mutation powers. Mm. Okay, Hooli, mm. let's, now, now that we've spent a bit of time reviewing and, and getting <laughs> our listeners re-engaged with those decisions, yep. let's talk about step four, <laughs> detailing out the powers. Yeah. We have a lot to cover. Absolutely. Now that we've reviewed all of that, we get into the next step. The The basic process is, is this. So we're going to go through the task of taking our six powers that we now have, uh, that we've defined in the previous episode, and actually flesh them out. Now, using the advice that we provided in episode 12, we're going to beg, borrow, and steal, because you're allowed to do that in this, as much as we can from the well-tested and balanced existing magic spells from the core rules. But we do have a few things, I guess, that we'll need to create out of whole cloth. So we're going to have to create it from scratch. Additionally, a good supplement will have dual sections for most powers or spells. One for narrative use and one for structured encounters. So we're going to have to cover off on that as well, uh, as they do in the core rules. So for our purpose, and to save some show time, we're going to combine both sections into our write-ups. Yes. So what's our first one, Chris? Well, block. Mm. Obviously, we, we, we said block, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, and we, we knew from the get-go we were going we to borrow from the barrier spell on this, okay? Mm-hmm. It's balanced. It works well. Very little change is needed other than a skill-focused facelift mm-hmm. um, and some theme-focused changes, especially to additional effects, which yep. you guys will see throughout all of our... Uh, beg, borrowed, and stolen uh, <laughs> spells into these mutation powers. Yep. So block itself, the power, uh, allows for concentration. And mm-hmm. as we said before, its skills are metabolics and psionics. Mm-hmm. The write-up is as follows. Characters with psionic and metabolic mutations have the ability to protect themselves, and in some cases, others, from incoming damage. This could be a momentary thickening of the skin or a rush of white blood cells throughout the body, in the case of metabolics, mm-hmm. or a field of mental force energy erected to, to deflect incoming damage, in the case of psionics. The character targets themselves and then makes a metabolics or psionics skill check. The default difficulty of the check is easy, mm-hmm. one purple die. If the check is successful until the end of the character's next turn, reduce the damage of all hits the target suffers by one and further reduce it by one for every uncancelled two successes beyond the first. And of course, before making a block check, choose any number of additional effects listed on the block additional effects table. These effects are added to the check. Mm. So we're going to go through each of these additional effects as well and kind of why we decided on them and what we changed. But before Mm. we do that, in terms of the core use of the power, Huli, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a rip and replace from Barrier, straight up. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing to, to take into consideration, uh, one of the rules of the Foundry is that you can't use uh, the wording from either the core rule book or anything that FFG has come out with in any of their books. So sure. it's important to basically give it the flavor of the setting that you're, uh, you're attempting. So just keep that in mind as we read through these powers. Yeah. Mainly because when you are doing your setting you two need to keep this all in mind, mainly for your protection so that you don't breach the rules of the foundry, but also to help your audience or the people who've purchased your product. You need to make sure that they understand the setting. And the only way that you can do that 
is obviously through the written words. So when you're doing these powers, when you're doing anything about your setting, make sure that you're not copying from anywhere else and that you're making sure that the information that you've got in there is setting specific. All right, so as we go through each of these effects, we'll, we'll read them out as we go and then, you know, um, we'll, we'll talk amongst uh, ourselves about how we've come to those decisions. Yeah. The first one is additional targets. Now, it's for psionics only. The power affects one additional target engaged with the character. In addition, after manifesting the power, you may spend one advantage to affect one additional target within range of the power and may trigger this multiple times, spending at one single advantage each time. The difficulty for that is just an extra purple die, so one level of a difficulty. So, Chris, yeah. why did we decide to go on Cyanix only? Well, there's two big changes made to this one mm -hmm. um, compared to what you see for barrier additional effects. The first is Cyanix only, and it comes down to the flavor and theme of the setting. Mm -hmm. Like, look, when you're talking metabolics, which is about enhancing your own body, it doesn't make sense in any remote way that you could transfer that protection to another target. Right. But with psionics, it does make sense. Mm. I can extend my my protective telekinetic bubble just a, just a just a mm. wee bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, the other big change in the spell um, is that if you if you actually look at the at the barrier spell, the barrier spell allows you actually to to select a target that's yourself or a target you're engaged with mm -hmm. uh, we kind of did away with that mm -hmm. that's another change from from the core power we, we did away with that because quite frankly post-apocalyptic it, it's not th these things shouldn't be they should be close but nowhere near as powerful as magic it's a little grittier okay mm -hmm. and ultimately the tone of post-apocalyptic is very much self first right mm -hmm. self-preservation self-survival so it made sense that the core ability would only affect yourself. But if you have psionics, you have the ability to affect an additional target. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it would be, you know, another target that is engaged with you. Mm -hmm. But one thing you'll see, though, is that, uh, that uh, unlike Barrier, we, we don't include a ranged upgrade for this at all. Mm -hmm. and, and again, you know, it, it's, it's uh, I, w when you're talking about arcane magic, if fine, I can cast a spell, uh, you know, short or medium range away. Yeah. If we're talking about a telekinetic bubble that's surrounding me, <laughs> maybe I expand it a little bit to encompass one or two other people, mm -hmm. but they still got to be engaged with me, right? Yeah, right. So that's kind of why that was done the way it was. Mm. So our next effect is uh, durability, and this one is for metabolics only. Now, it says, after manifesting the power, you may spend two advantages to grant the target plus one to their soak while the power remains in effect. In addition, you may spend one advantage to increase the soak by an additional plus one and may trigger this multiple times, spending one advantage each time. The difficulty for this is going to be plus one difficulty. Yeah, this is, this is new. Mm. There's nothing like this for barrier. I really wanted to create something that that I wanted to get a couple a couple additional effects that were psionic only mm -hmm. and a couple that were metabolic only. And when I thought about how metabolics would manifest this power with the enhancing of your existing body, it, it made sense. Where whereas we'll come to it in a bit, uh, defense can be added using both powers, and, mm -hmm. and that's kind of classic barrier. Mm -hmm. But or using using both skills. Um, but for metabolics, like the ability to just like toughen up your skin, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. to, to just just momentarily go just and just you know 
I mean, to to me, and, and plus, you know, soak is also a function of brawn. So that idea of being able to temporarily enhance your brawn in a limited way through just soak yeah. made a lot of sense. Mm. But soak increases are are powerful from a talent perspective. They're mm. they're not easy to come by. I mean, you have ranked talents that that are a little expensive when you start getting up there. Mm-hmm. So compared to some other things, I, I don't know. We thought it was too advantage worthy to get the base effect. Yeah. But you know, when you get past two advantage, it's I mean. You're, the average amount of advantage you're going to roll on a check is one or two. That's mm. just flat out, okay, unless you're really skilled. Yep. So you can pump up the soak even more for more and more and more advantage, but those are going to be the hedge cases that really make this additional effect kind of fun. Yeah. The next one we had is add defense. Now, each affected target gains ranged and melee defense equal to your ranks in discipline. Uh, and that's going to be plus two difficulty. This, so this is this is straight out of the barrier additional effects yep. with the one the one major exception being the keyed skill. Mm. Now we this is the first time we're mentioning this uh, in this process, and we'll mention it now, and you'll see it again and again. We talked about this back in episode I think eight or ten, mm-hmm. where you know the, the the core rulebook when it comes to magic says knowledge, right? <laughs> yep. But. You, you know that when you've got your own unique setting, you're going to have myriad knowledge skills. So you have to change that anyway to meet, uh, you know, in the case of arcane magic, you know, like a specific knowledge skill. Mm. And, and for other things, you may have to change it again. After really thinking about it and, and doing a little bit of, of one-offs, discipline made the most sense. Right. One, it's an underutilized skill. Mm-hmm. Okay. So all the more reason for somebody to take ranks in it. Right. Two, it represents innate control over yourself Mm. Mm. okay so very fitting yeah all right and three it is not presence based and it is not cunning based it is willpower based Mm -hmm. presence and cunning are used for telekinesis yep and aberrantics right which are also as we'll get to in a bit the two skills that apply to strike Mm. was through at least the initial rough play test there was a lot of imbalance Mm-hmm. In basically making willpower the super stat, basically, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, yeah, my, you know, I have all the reason in the world to take ranks in discipline mm-hmm. um, because my willpower is so high. And oh, yeah, by the way, that also uh, that willpower skill, you know, yeah, also covers um, my strike power, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, willpower is not used for strike at all. Yep. So discipline seemed a good cross skill fit to really force a bit of balancing XP expenditure, yeah. basically. Absolutely. That's what I was just about to say. Um, It does create that much, much more balanced sort of rule set. Uh, The next one is empowered. Now, the power reduces damage equal to the number of uncancelled successes instead of the normal effect. And that's a plus two difficulty for that one. Now, that's again, um, straight out of barrier as well. Um, So, um, you know, we're, we're not telling anybody anything new. The next one is Fearsome. I'm excited. This is new. (laughs) Right. Fearsome, which is the metabolics only. If an opponent fails an attack roll against an affected target, the opponent must immediately make a fear check with a difficulty equal to your ranks in discipline. So there's that discipline again, which, uh, which is handy. And it's a plus two difficulty. So you said that uh, this is an, a, a new one for you, Chris. So what? tell us a little bit about this. How did you come up with this part? Okay, well, I, I wanted to th- – there's only one other after this, which is Reflection, and uh, Psionics was the only one that made sense. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to have another Metabolics-only effect. 
And I, I got to thinking about Fallout, and I got to thinking about Super Mutants. Right. And <laughs> the bottom line is, when I try to attack you and I fail, and I notice that your skin literally, like, like I plunged a dagger into your chest, and it literally glanced off. The skin caused the blade to bend slightly, okay? <laughs> yep. That's terrifying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And and so so the idea of being able to and again it's not cheap because fear attacks are fear checks suck. Mm-hmm. It's, it's plus two difficulty dice, yeah. but it's one of those things that you know. Hey, while the power's up, if somebody fails an attack roll, you know they're they're like, oh my god, and <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna trigger a fear check. Yeah. So I I don't know. I, I thought it was I thought it was fun and very fitting. Um, however, I really want to see it play tested. <laughs> And then our last effect is reflection, and this is psionics only. And it says, if an opponent makes an attack against an affected target with a projectile weapon or similar attack, as determined by the GM, and generates three threat or a despair on the check, after the check is resolved, they suffer a hit dealing damage equal to the total damage of the attack. Now, the difficulty increase for this one is two. Mm-hmm. This is interesting, but it's straight out of the book. Just about, yeah, yeah, yeah. just about. Yeah, it only changes the re- the reflection additional effect for barrier only applies to magic attacks. Yeah, I didn't. I thought it was. I thought it was cheap to say this would only apply to mutation powers. That didn't make sense at all. <laughs> because if I'm hurling a porcupine quill at you, what's the difference between that and an arrow or a bullet? Yeah, and then the big thing, of course, is making it psionics only. Um, the idea of reflecting something back seems like an seems like an avenue of telekinetic force. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it just didn't make sense for metabolics. Mm. All right. So our next uh, ability or our next spell power is enhance. Now this power is about uh, improved physical and mental abilities, and here we can beg, borrow, and steal from uh, from the augment spell uh, again with some minor setting specific adjustments. Now the spell says, sorry, the power says. Enhance. Concentration, yes. Skills, metabolics only. The, this power is about mutations that temporarily enhanced the already present capabilities of a character, becoming stronger, faster, tougher, and smarter, at least for a short time. The character targets themselves, then makes a metabolic skill check. The default difficulty of the check is average, uh, or two purple die. If the check is successful until the end of your character's next turn, increase the ability of any skill checks you make by one. In effect, this means adding an ability die to your checks. Before making an enhanced check, choose any number of additional effects listed in the enhanced additional effects table. These effects are added to the check. Some interesting ones here. So the first one is fast healing. After manifesting the power, you may spend two advantages to cause the target to immediately heal one wound at the end of their turn while the power remains in effect. In addition, you may spend one advantage to increase the fast healing by an additional plus one wounds and may trigger this multiple times spending one advantage each time. And it's only plus one difficulty. Yeah. So this is this is new. Yeah. It made a lot of sense for Enhance. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our next Magic episode, we'll talk about talents. We're also going to have some talent options that really improve your healing. Mm-hmm. But I, I love the idea of having an in-encounter power to be able to to, to do it. 
Yeah. Um, and again, it's not it's not the core of the power. And in fact, we actually have a power that will heal you as its core ability. But we'll come to that. Hmm. And this isn't really healing you as its core ability. It's like it's it's fast healing, right? Yeah. Right. It's like it's it's like it's like regeneration. It's like hey, at the end of your turn, you heal a wound. Hmm. You know, oh, you just you know, but but you got but you got to pull off two advantage just to pop that off after you increase the difficulty, right? right? Mm-hmm. And and the fact is that this this power, and as you went through the core power, it's pretty much a straight rip from from augment. Mm-hmm. That's an that's a, that's a two purple difficulty. Mm-hmm. You throw fast healing in the mix. That's a three purple difficulty minimum. All right. And you still got to generate two advantage off of that. Mm. So it, it's actually, again, through a little bit of playtesting, um, it's kind of hard to pull off, <laughs> um, at least at low XP. Not until your pool's high. And when your pool's high, this is acceptable. It's yep. okay. Absolutely. So anyway, it, I don't know. It fit, it fit enhanced very well. Doesn't it fit enhanced very well? I agree. I agree. It's really, really good. And if you can get it off with uh, something that, I, that I've just been thinking about now is that if you did that at the start of round one, for example, it will stay in effect until the end of your next turn. So that means if you go first and then in the next round you go last, because I'm just power gaming a little bit, that you can make that fast healing last for two turns effectively. So if you've managed to get three advantages, uh, you would be healing two wounds for, uh, for two turns. Uh, of course, you'll obviously be needing to uh, to use a maneuver to um, you know keep it up if you want to go beyond that. Yeah, uh, it's certainly something that if if you're the uh, the meat shield of the party um, and you have this ability, it's great for that sort of thing to to keep you going. When if all that you're doing is attacking, you just tend not to move unless you absolutely have to or yeah. get ready to spend some strain. <laughs> So, and, uh, if, and if you're if you're if you're the meat shield in the post-apocalyptic setting, and you're a meat shield mutant, mm-hmm. uh, metabolics should be your thing. <laughs> yes. That's that's what it is. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And, and yeah, yeah. Anyway. All right. So our next one is haste. So targets affected by the power can always perform a second maneuver on their turn without spending strain. They may still only perform two maneuvers a turn. Uh, and that's with a plus one difficulty. And again, this is taken straight out of Augment. Yeah, taken straight out of Augment. Mm. Uh, the next one, which is Hardened Bones. Now, this one's unique, is it not, Chris? No, it's a reskin of um, of uh, Primal Fury, actually, with a right. few twists. Right. So it says the target adds damage equal to their ranks in Discipline, to unarmed combat checks for the duration of the power, and their critical rating for unarmed combat checks becomes three, uh, and it's a plus one difficulty. Yeah. How did you go from from taking it from one place to the next? Well, it's it's honestly a straight rip and replace. I just mm. primal fury is called that because it, for augment it's a primal only additional effect. Right. So primal fury just didn't make sense here, and <laughs> I thought about it in the context of enhance and metabolics mm-hmm. somebody somebody strengthening their bones and their fists or feet you know temporarily to to the tensile strength of steel mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. and and harding those bones i mean that, that that's what it is yep. and so and so guess what you can now hit like a dump truck because you're not <laughs> in any danger of breaking your fist right and and, and but it, but obviously it applies to unarmed attacks at that point mm-hmm. the augment additional effect of primal fury you, you increase uh, da- its damage equal to the character's ranks and knowledge so obviously it's discipline here mm-hmm. um, and yeah the the critical rating uh, becomes three just like for primal fury yeah yep. cool very good uh, the next one is mutant health 
So the target increases their wound threshold by a value equal to the character's ranks in discipline for the duration of the power. Plus one, plus one difficulty on that mm-hmm. one, and it's a straight rip and reskin of Divine Health, Health. from Augment, just mm-hmm. with a nice flavorful label put on it. <laughs> Indeed. The next one, uh, which is directly, again, straight out of uh, the Augment additional effects, which is Swift. And the target ignores the effects of difficult terrain and cannot be immobilized for the duration of the power. And it's an increased difficulty of plus one. Yeah. And then the last one, which is fast. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you giggle when we introduce these new things. So so, uh, it's called fast recovery. And after manifesting the power, you may spend two advantages to cause the target to automatically recover one strain at the end of their turn while the power remains in effect. In addition, you may spend one advantage to increase the fast recovery by an additional one strain and may trigger this multiple times, spending one advantage each time. Fast recovery and fast healing in the one thing would be an amazing difficulty, but well worth it, I think. <laughs> if you could get it off in yeah. the first place, yeah, absolutely. So, so. So you didn't mention, but fast recovery is plus two difficulty. Oh, plus two difficulty. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, right. So this goes back to Huli. You and I have had all these conversations about how easy it is to recover strain versus Mm -hmm. wounds. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Strain should be harder to recover. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because you have more opportunities to recover it. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but that's just how it is. Yep. Additionally, you got to be a little leery of allowing strain recovery easily Mm -hmm. outside of a special power that's designed for it when you're using strain to activate these powers. Mm. So as a result, it's like, whereas fast healing is a plus one difficulty, fast recovery is plus two difficulty. Mm. So you're looking at a minimum of four purple dice to pull this off. Mm. And you got to generate two advantage at a minimum, which is going to be hard to do with four purple dice. And like you said, if you throw fast healing on there and you combine it, so it's a fast healing, fast recovery enhance, Mm. that's five dice. Mm. So you're maxing out. And to activate both of them, you would have to generate four advantage. Mm. All right. And then, and at that point, it's still just healing one strain and one wound. That's it. Mm. It would be interesting to see whether we have uh, the equivalent of a signature mutation, which, uh, <laughs> which we'll talk about next episode, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Interesting. But yeah, th- those, so th- those were the additional effects for, for enhance. And, mm. you know, the goal was to, to you know, enhances is augment, but with that metabolics flair, right? Right, and hopefully that's reflected in the additional effects. Mm. So, and I really yeah. do like the the way that um, we've removed the additional targets. So it is very much more about uh, themselves. I think that that's uh, that's great uh, and really suits that that power. Absolutely, and for metabolics, it has to be because it's metabolics. It's yep. about enhancing your own body. Yeah. You can't transfer it. And you guys are going to see that theme, that decision represented in every power we continue to talk about that uses metabolics, except yep. there's only one more, but mm. we'll get there. <laughs> Indeed. All right. So our next uh, power is strike. Uh, so continuing our theme, we're going to borrow and reskin the excellent attack spell with some thematic alterations. So we've said that uh, it's a concentration. No, uh, which is obvious. Uh, the skills are going to be Apparantics and Psionics. 
So characters with aberrant or psionic mutations can manifest ranged attacks against foes. Whether this is a psychic blast of telekinetic energy, a shredding of a foe's psyche, or hurled quills of bone spurs, acid vomit, or radiation beams from the eyes. Strike attacks are ranged combat checks, and they follow the normal rules for performing a combat check using the character's mutation skill instead of a combat skill. When making a strike attack, the character must select one target at short range, but not engaged. The attack deals damage equal to the characteristic linked to the skill used to make the attack. So if a character uses aberrantics, they would deal damage equal to their cunning, plus one damage per uncancelled success. The attack has no set critical rating, so you may only inflict a critical injury with a triumph. Before making a strike attack, choose any number of additional effects listed on the strike additional effects table. These effects are added to the check. So this is straight up, this is the attack spell. Right. All right. I mean, straight up. The only change was to the skills. Mm. We're going to come back to this. We had a bit of... It's hard because we haven't gotten to, and we and we we're, we probably won't even next episode. Hmm. We haven't gotten to implements yet, right? But when you look at the attack spell from a magic standpoint, the damage that it deals is actually relatively minor or low. But the assumption there is that it's going to be augmented through the use of implements. Hmm. As we will eventually come to, you're not going to see those kinds of implements for mutations. You're just not right. So. This is still, I still didn't want to monkey with the core power too much. Mm-hmm. So found another interesting way to deal with it through the use of additional effects. Mm. But we'll, we'll, maybe maybe we can talk about those. Yep. There's a lot. I apologize. <laughs> yes, it goes on for two pages. Um, so the, the first one is blast. So the attack deals the blast quality with a rating equal to your character's ranks in discipline and it's plus one difficulty. Uh, so other than the, the change in discipline, it's exactly the same as uh, the blast effect from, uh, from the normal magic attack. Yep. Yep. Now I had a, I had a, I, I had a thought. I, you know, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe this could be like psionic only, mm-hmm. but I'm sorry, uh, a spray of acidic vomit or radiation beams, you know, shot from your hands could easily <laughs> accomplish a blast effect. Yep. So it made sense to include it for both. Mm. Aberrantics and psionics. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next one is barrage. So the attack gains the stun quality with a rating equal to your character's ranks in discipline. The attack also gains the auto fire quality. You must increase the difficulty by one to use the auto fire as normal. It's a it's a reskin of the lightning additional effect. Ah, um, right. Of course. Yes. From uh, from from a, from attack additional effects, mm. and it's. It's, again, a plus one die difficulty, plus one uh, difficulty. Mm-hmm. Some of the other additional effects that were more like elemental in focus, as we'll come to, mm-hmm. like fire and ice, I, I, we actually kept. But when it came to lightning, I almost kept it. But the thing is, fire and ice, as we'll come to, are aberrantics only because, duh, that makes sense. I, I can't manifest a psychic attack. Well, I suppose I could, like Firestarter or something. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it seemed a little off, off kilter. It made sense to me that those would be aberrantic abilities, right? Mm-hmm. right. Because they're so unnatural. Mm-hmm. Lightning also made sense. You know, somebody with like an electric eel gullet or something that they've <laughs> evolved to mm-hmm. that could do this power. But I didn't want this to be exclusive to aberrantics because – 
the ability to get the stun quality and the auto fire quality, hmm. that's actually very reasonable for psionics. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. It makes total sense for psionics, especially stun. And then rapid the auto fire quality that can also work for psionics. You know, it's like a, just a you know a barrage of mental blasts, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as a result, I didn't want to keep it lightning. So right. just reskin the name to be barrage. Right. Sounds cool. The next one is Close Combat, which is may select a target engaged with your character, plus one difficulty. That's directly straight out of the book. Yep. So Close Combat, uh, again, the same, may select a target engaged with your character with a plus one difficulty. So for those that didn't know that if you're using magic, it starts at short range. But if you want to be in close combat, you've got to do like you do with any sort of ranged weapon. You have to increase the difficulty. So um, the the close combat, increase it by one uh, difficulty. The next one uh, is damaging. So each uncancelled success on the attack roll deals plus two damage instead of plus one. Uh, this sounds very much like backstab. <laughs> um, what's ironic is that is that uh, just from a show notes perspective, we mm. we, we wrote the diecasting segment um, after this one, right? <laughs> um, so so it is coincidental. Truth be told, mm. um, but this is a this is a plus one difficulty, mm-hmm. and this is brand new. This was how we deal with the low damage of the base attack spell and corresponding base strike power. Right. Where it's actually, I mean, listen, this is a pretty easy check to do at at short range. Mm. I mean, you're going to only face one purple die. Right. So bumping it up to an extra purple die and then being able to get plus two damage for each uncanceled success was a great way to get damage to where it needed to be for this power. Mm Mm-hmm. Without the use of implements, basically. Right. And as we'll get to next next magic episode, when we talk about uh, uh, talents, as you said, the idea of an equivalent of signature spell can certainly make this uh, <laughs> a lot easier. <laughs> but but yeah, I don't know, Huli. It seemed like a really elegant solution to deal with the fact that implements didn't make sense and we had to close that damage gap somehow. Yeah. You know, there, there may be some argument to say that you increase the, uh, the difficulty twice. But look, um, you know, most people are going to be wandering around with, uh, you know, rifles or, or some sort of firearm, and they're going to be doing base damage, you know, five, six, seven, or higher. So if you've got a character who is using this, they need to be competitive, I guess, with, with the other characters who may not necessarily have these powers, uh, because you still have to invest XP into these skills when you have them in the first place. But implements is the main reason why that was um, why we've done it the way that we've done it. The next one is deadly. So the attack gains the uh, critical rating of two. The attack also gains the vicious quality with a rating equal to your character's ranks in discipline. Uh, and that's plus one difficulty. Now, we've seen this as well already in the, uh, in the rules. Uh, so it's just a, a complete copy paste. No major changes there other than, obviously, the uh, the discipline as opposed to knowledge. Yep. And next one is fire, and that's aberrantics only. So the attack gains the burn quality with a rating equal to your character's ranks in discipline. Now, in the standard out-of-the-core-rules version of the attack spell, we don't see a limitation regarding which magic skill can use this effect. Well, except for, the, you know, what magic skill can use the attack spell anyway 
In our version, however, we've placed the limitation of aberrantics only, mainly because generating fire out of nothing is not within our theme for anybody else except aberrantics. The aberrants in our setting are mutants who've somehow gained the ability to create these adaptations internally with their own bodies, with, you know, manifesting these things physically as opposed to mentally. So when it comes to the the theme, having anybody else other than Aberantics using the fire or cold, that's just outside of the, that sort of thematic realm. Now, Chris, you mentioned before that pyrokinetics or, or making fire out of nothing could play a part using the telekinetic power or the telekinesis power, should I say. I think you've got some additional thoughts on that. Am I, am I right there? Absolutely. If I, if I was running like a, a true psionics campaign where we flesh that out, I, I might allow psionics to do this because pyro uh, a pyrokinesis is mm. a, a thing in yep. you know fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just didn't make sense here. No. Um, and and uh, we didn't mention this is a plus one difficulty ability. Yeah. Most, most of them. Yeah. Yep. So the next one is ice, which is again aberrantics only, and the attack gains the ensnare quality with a rating equal to your character's ranks and discipline. And again, that's a plus one difficulty. Um, again, straight away taken out of uh, the core rules. And think about it, we, we kept it ice because again, it's it's what's there for 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 attack spell today. Mm-hmm. Um, but narratively speaking, Huli, considering it's aberrantics, it doesn't actually have to be ice. Like it could be, mm. but this could be like a glop of goopy slime. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, the whole point is it gives the attack the ensnare quality. Right. And there's there's several ways narratively you could accomplish that. So mm. that's also worth worth noting. Mm. It's also worth noting. Very cool. Uh, the next one is impact, uh, which is psionics only. The attack gains the knockdown quality. Uh, the attack also gains the disorient quality with an rating equal to your character's ranks in discipline, uh, again, with a plus one difficulty. Uh, this, again, is just a copy-paste, other than that uh, the change from knowledge and discipline. All right, so our next effect is manipulative, which is psionics only, and it says if the attack hits, you may spend an advantage to move the target up to one range band in any direction. And the difficulty for that is plus one difficulty. Now, this is obviously a direct copy-paste from the Coral book under the effects for attack. So we've made it Psionics because it doesn't really make a lot of sense for someone with uh, with Abrantics to, to be manipulating things finely. Is that right, Chris? Yeah, more or less. And yeah. it was kind of the same decision with, with Impact as well, which is also Psionics only. Yeah. I mean, realistically, sure, I could make the case that you know, like back back with impact, it's like, well, you know, I could have a aberrantic range attack that could knock them down, you know, and disorient them. Yeah, mm. I could have a, you know, aberrantic tentacle attack that could use manipulate. I mean, yeah, I guess. Mm. But w- <laughs> this is another common thing. I find it to be very fun when you have two skills that can be used to activate the power. Mm-hmm that you have a good diversity of additional effects that can only be accomplished by one or the other. It really adds a distinctive flavor 
to differentiate what attack, what 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 in this case strike powers look like mm. if it's a psionic mm. doing it versus an aberrantic. Yep. And the abilities that are available to them. Mm. So when it came to to impact and manipulative, yeah, it made sense. I mean, they're they're those are those are telekinetic qualities that would come from a a, a psionic strike. Mm. Yeah. So then we go into non-lethal, and it's psionics only. Uh, again, the attack gains the stun damage quality, plus one difficulty, very, very simple, and straight out of the book. Yep. The, ne- the next one is range. Uh, again, straight out of the book, increase the range of the power by one range band. This may be added multiple times, increasing the range band by one each time, with a plus one difficulty, again, taken straight out of the book. Uh, the next one is Destructive, which is also out of the book. The attack gains the Sunder quality. The attack also gains the Pierce quality, with the rating equal to the character's ranks in Discipline, with the obvious change there, and it's plus two difficulty. The The next one is Empowered, and it says the attack deals damage equal to twice the characteristic linked to the skill instead of dealing damage equal to the characteristic. If the attack has the blast quality, it affects all characters within short range instead of engaged. And it's plus two difficulty. Yeah. So this was a hard one. It's it's a straight it's straight out of the book for magic attack. Mm-hmm. And I thought this might first solve the problem of that attack damage of the damage gap we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. with damaging. But the thing is, this is really expensive. Mm. Um, and I didn't want it to be that expensive. And honestly, doubling the characteristic damage typically for most characters is going to add a three, maybe a four. Hmm. And that can work, but it's really expensive. The real power behind Empowered, for those of us who've used magic and played quite a bit with it, Hmm. is the second part, (laughs) which is extending blast to short range. That's the real power. So didn't want to lose that. Mm. Um, and because of that, the fact that it impacts blast and blast, we made available to both skill choices. It made sense. It was imperative that empowered also be made available to both skills as yeah. well. Yeah. Be a very interesting combination to, uh, to get damaging and empowered together. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what that plays out like at the table. And, uh, I think in that sort of circumstance, you're dealing with, uh, four difficulty for a start. Uh, and that's yeah. only at short range. So, you know, most combat, and we'll talk about this uh, in another episode much later on down the track when we talk about combat. But, uh, you know, you should be looking at, uh, you know, you're starting your personal scale combat at long range. So, you know, you're, uh, you're not going to be able to be attacking really well unless you've got a, a, some sort of, you know, signature psionic or signature power to uh, to be firing far away and as soon as you start dealing that then you've got the issue that it's affecting everything within short range which means you <laughs> so you, you've got that as a problem as well so i'd uh, say so yeah that's that's actually pretty balanced i think so the next one is poisonous so that's aberrantics only and it says if the attack deals damage the target must immediately make a hard resilience check or suffer wounds equal to the character's ranks in discipline and strain equal to the character's ranks in discipline. This counts as a poison and its difficulty is plus two. Again, taken directly out of uh, the core rules yep. and, uh, you know, we've just given it that that aberrantics flair, I guess. It made sense. I mean, mm. honestly, you're not going to, a psionic is not going to be able to make a poisonous attack, okay? no. no. 
it just doesn't make sense. And this is ridiculously powerful um, <laughs> because that's a that's a strong check for poison. But that's yeah. why it's got that plus two difficulty as yeah, well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now the last one is all new. <laughs> so it is radioactive, and it's aberrantics only. Now we mentioned this as one of the core concepts that we wanted to be able to use. Uh, where you've got someone who was spewing out radioactive, whether it be fluid, whether it be a blast of radiation generally, or something like that. So it says, if the attack deals damage, the target must immediately make a hard resilience check or become staggered for a number of rounds equal to the character's ranks in discipline. This counts as exposure to radiation. Now, Chris, this is something that we see in the EPG on page 29 under the post-apocalypse where they talked about radiation. Is this where you've got the idea from or have you got a different sort of methodology for that? So ironically, no, I didn't get the <laughs> idea from this. I, I, I wish I had right? because um, that certain glow sidebar, I didn't even think about it mm-hmm. um, with this. It's radioactive in terms of the fact that it, it has a really – like remember – then keep in mind, this is a plus two difficulty. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Staggered is the worst condition in the game. <laughs> next okay? to immobilized. Yes. <laughs> next to, yes. Next to immobilized or dead. Yeah. It's the worst condition in the game. Right. Where you can't, you can't take actions. Mm. Okay. Right. And, and so this is, this is punishingly awful. Mm. The, the, the radiation rules that are in the sidebar in the EPG actually, I think are a little lighter. They, they still have the same three purple resilience check. But the, you, you then suffer like levels of radiation right. and, uh, you know, and that can reduce your thresholds and it all makes complete absolute sense. My thing is for the fast and furious nature of a structured encounter, mm-hmm. I don't really want my GM or players to have to start tracking levels of radiation in the heat of combat. Right. It's one more thing to kind of confuse thing. It's an awesome environmental effect. And mm-hmm. and for the post-apocalyptic setting, this this power set would go in, boom, you'd be using it, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, but but here it – and I, I'm really interested to play test this because it's a plus two difficulty. And, I mean, God, that forces a hard resilience check. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to know if this is too overpowered, if stagger is too much. Mm. M- might move this to three purple dice. In fact, as we're talking about it, I mm-hmm. think three purple dice is really where it needs to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't you? Yeah, look, it is really powerful. And again, I guess it depends on what our definition of, and we would obviously, if we were doing this as a complete setting, that we would be looking at what the uh, the definition of exposure to radiation means. Um, and yeah. that's going to determine how bad it actually is. I think that if we were using something like what's in the EPG, that we might be keeping it, um, you know, around about that uh, that plus two, or even then, it just depends because we've got kind of two very powerful effects um, that uh, that can effectively kill a character um, in the long term. So um, you know that's that's uh, yeah that's that's interesting. I, I think that for this though, um, without sort of going into that full explanation of, of what uh, radiation exposure is, plus three difficulty is certainly suitable. Yeah, and the reason I included the uh, the this counts as exposure to radiation is actually due to one of the survive power abilities that will come to right. Right. Speaking of, mm. we can talk about that. Absolutely. Yeah, survive. 
this is one of the powers that we'd said we'd need to make out of whole cloth, something entirely unique to the post-apocalyptic setting. Mm-hmm. That was the intent. But as we planned this, mm-hmm. and as we researched this, we decided to borrow an abridged and very limited version of the heal spell mechanic as well. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, though, this power represents mutations that increase your survivability in unusual circumstances. Mm. Um, Very unique to this particular setting of post-apocalyptic mutation world. Mm. It's it's on-the-fly adaptations. Mm -hmm. And and while this power does have some really good structured encounter use, it has very strong narrative uses um, as well. And unlike the other descriptions we've gone through, you're going to see a bit of a lengthy description in here to kind of cover those narrative uses as well because they really do matter for survive mm. and it where it, it, it reflects that yeah so mm. yeah all right so let's get stuck into this power so the power is called survive uh concentration yes and the skills to use it are aberrantics and metabolics and the wording is as follows characters with aberrant and metabolic mutations have adapted to temporarily protect themselves from some of the harsh conditions of the post-apocalyptic world This may be from an enhanced toughened body via metabolics or from the formation of gills or some other unnatural bodily structures and abilities via aberrantics. Survive power represents on-the-fly adaptations that protect the character from environmental hazards and effects instead of attacks. From a narrative standpoint, this means enhancing the body's overall ability to heal and recover, but also to ignore or reduce the effects of dangerous post-apocalyptic environmental hazards such as hunger or thirst, radiation, extreme heat or cold, acid rain, or other toxic atmospheres. When using survive powers narratively, the GM should assign the difficulty using the difficulty and additional effects listed for structured encounter use as a strong guide. In general, ignoring or reducing the effect of a single moderate hazard should be average difficulty, while intense hazards could warrant a hard or even formidable difficulty. Additionally, such narrative effect difficulty should provide protection for roughly an hour, longer than that, and it should increase the difficulty. Instruction encounters, survive powers provide immediate births of metabolic healing, as well as short-term defense against nasty circumstances. To use this power, the character targets themselves, then makes an aberrantics or metabolic skill check. The default difficulty of the check is average. If the check is successful, the character immediately heals one wound per uncancelled success and one strain per uncancelled advantage. Before making a survive check, choose any number of additional effects listed on the survive additional effects table. These effects are added to the check and remain in effect until the end of the character's next turn unless concentration is used to extend the power's effects. The base healing effect of the power only occurs once and does not occur across multiple turns. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, and, and a lot of the coolness of this power is going to come in additional effects, which we'll get to. Right. But this is kind of something that I've not seen done before. Mm-hmm. And, and we had to put some interesting verbiage in here to make it work. Mm. This is a concentration power. Right. But healing is not. 
it's instantaneous the same way strike is. Right. Okay. So you, you have to make it concentratable because there's some additional effects that really are, are things that last over time, but that one time boost of healing is instantaneous, if that mm. makes sense. Right? Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. The yeah. other big changes between heal and the base effect of survive are one, be, uh, because again, it's aberrantics and metabolics, mm-hmm. you can't target somebody else. It right. only affects you. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which makes, which makes sense. Mm. The other thing is heal as you and I have talked about. Huli is redonkulously powerful. <laughs> yep. And it, it exists in a magical, it's designed for a system where magical healing is the norm. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So as a result, the base difficulty was increased from in from what is in the heal spell is is a, is a, an easy check mm-hmm. to average or two purple dice for this. Right. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's gonna it's gonna heal you, but not as much. Right. And and the fact that it only impacts yourself, I think, is 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 key. Yeah. And that that was that was a, that was an interesting thing to come up with. <laughs> and the the differentiation though between the narrative effect and the in encounter effect are 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 pretty stark. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of power you use to you know, as you said earlier, power through a radioactive dust storm without it affecting you, right? Mm-hmm. You know, for an hour or whatever. Right. But you've got you've got much reduced time frames on additional effects in structured encounters. And mm-hmm. we'll we'll come to that. And yeah. and the the additional effects I guess we can go through are are really it was fun. There's quite a few that were reskins from heel mm-hmm. and quite a few more that were brand new from whole cloth. Yeah. So mm. all right. So our first one is anti rad. So the target ignores any effects of radiation for the duration of the power. Uh, and that's plus one difficulty. So again, we would have to go through and define what the effects of radiation are for our setting. Uh, so that's what, you know, and, and uh, Chris, are we going to actually go and do that at some point? Or is that sort of something that... Maybe if we continue with this setting, I, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is uh, uh, quite a few episodes devoted to just converting the magic system. Right, yeah. But... This this seemed pretty thematic. Um, mm. Also, additionally, if you recall from the strike power we just went through, yep. we have that additional effect of radioactive. Mm. It's worth noting that somebody with anti-rad up from a survive standpoint would flat out ignore the effect. Right. That's why it says, you know, this counts as exposure to radiation. Mm. So, yeah, plus one purple. I don't know. It, it made sense, and it was obviously very thematic for the setting. Absolutely. Uh, the next one is hardiness. So the the target ignores any effects of extreme heat or extreme cold environments for the duration of the power, uh, and it's plus one difficulty. The I think for this one, I mean, we don't see a lot of extreme heat and extreme cold environments in the game, and it's only covered really uh, in the one section when we, when it's talking about environments. Um, you know, the, the one that is going to, you know, that most people go to first is obviously heat when you're talking about lava or talking about, you know, close to a volcano or, or, or battling a fire or something like that. But cold is just as bad for, uh, for those who don't know about the cold as much as say you do, Chris, I know nothing about the cold because I live in Australia and we're just burning all the time. <laughs> but, Absolutely. The, the effects of extreme heat, I mean, don't have to be something as dramatic as a volcano. Hmm. Uh, you can come to the U.S. and take a visit to Death Valley and find, you su- find yourself suffering a setback die to everything you do. Hmm. 
And so when you talk about post-apocalyptic, you're going to have these areas of scorching desert. Yep. Okay. Mm. They're going to be very common. Alternatively, depending on how the apocalyptic event happened, you could also have areas of nuclear winter. Mm. It, it made a lot of sense to put this one in, mm-hmm. you know, because that's a fun environmental thing that is, again, while uncommon in most of Genesis, would actually be fairly, should be fairly common mm. in a post-apocalyptic setting camp, uh, encounter. Yep. And it, it sucks when you're having to make attack rolls and suffer a setback die because it, you're, you're sweating buckets <laughs> and dizzy from the heat mm. or so cold that you can't feel your fingers. Yeah. And the ability to temporarily ignore that is nice. Mm, absolutely. And the one thing that you might consider as well is that if you're the only character in this in the party, it is a spell that needs to be, you know, maintained. Uh, and we've we've said that its uh, concentration is yes. It's still mm-hmm. going to slow you down. So if you're using that in a non-narrative, uh, sorry, in a narrative encounter as opposed to, um, you know, your, your structured form, that uh, as a GM, you would be saying, well, you know, yes, you can avoid that, but it's going to take you twice as long. And therefore, your friends are going to be exposed for a lot longer to that, uh, that, that cold or, or heat as well. So, you know, that's something that you'd be balancing up whether you want to do that or, or, or take, be taking additional strain. So you might be using another ability or something like that um, at the same time. So, but anyway, Absolutely. something to think about. Hmm. The, uh, the next one is oxygenation. So the target does not need to breathe for the duration of the power. Uh, and this is a plus one difficulty. Mm-hmm. Again, it, it's obviously, you know, if you have to go into an area with poison gas or, or, or something like that, again, you're going to be slower, but it means that you're not going to be um, succumbing to the effects of that, depending on, you know, how it's designed or how the poison is designed. So, um, yep. yeah, fairly fitting. Um, and you are going to have areas within this environment, uh, within the setting that are going to be filled with yeah. noxious gases as well. So, um, yeah. yeah, definitely. Even even something simple as walking into a burning building should be presenting mm. environmental atmospheric hazards. Yeah, absolutely, as it burns up all the oxygen. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Let's, let's also not forget that, you know, not needing to breathe uh, allows you to do things underwater. Ah, that's a good call. And this was, this was, this was another thing too, is, is although – Although um, survive can be accomplished with aberrantics and m- metabolics, mm-hmm. not a single one of these is restricted to either aberrantics or metabolics. Mm-hmm. You know, oxygenation is a nice way of saying, you know, if you're if, if you're using metabolics, this could be like you, you're literally just able to hold your breath, you know, mm-hmm. for for extended periods of time. You're enhancing what you can do naturally. Mm-hmm. If you're doing oxygenation with aberrantics, this could be something like gills, you know, that yep. you physically grow. Um, you know, or, or, you know, lung protection of some type or, uh, you know, biological filter in your throat. Mm. So yeah, you can have some fun with that narrative. Absolutely. Uh, the next one is restoration. So select one ongoing status effect. The character is suffering. This status effect immediately ends. Uh, and that's going to be a plus one difficulty again, taken directly out of, uh, the heal effects. Yep. The this is great, especially if you've got the immobilized condition, as we mentioned before, um, <laughs> that uh, it gets rid of that as well. Uh, but it's also from disorient as well. That's uh, the same sort of thing. Absolutely, mm. and it made so much sense for the survive power. Yeah, definitely. 
the next one is Heal Critical, which again is taken directly out of Heal Effects. So select one critical injury the target is suffering. If the power is successful, the critical injury is also healed. And it's a plus two difficulty. Yeah. The one thing I just want to touch base on this, and I think we spoke about this uh, in a previous episode as well, more to do when we were talking about medicine, is that the Heal Critical ability is great for for criticals where you don't have the medicine skill at a high level. So a high level of difficulty that you've got for the uh, for the critical injury. So if you've got a three or a four, uh, that it's great for that. But you may also want to consider using medicine instead if you've got like one or two uh, because the, the difficulty doesn't quite work out. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So, just keep that in mind um, as uh, as the means for uh, for healing those critical injuries. Well, let's also talk about the obvious here. Okay, mm-hmm. he- heal critical as a part of the survive power is instantaneous. Yes, if you, it's it's something you can do in combat. Mm-hmm. You can't use medical skill to heal a critical injury in combat. Mm-hmm. That requires surgery. That's, <laughs> okay. That is true. Um, That's another advantage. Yes, <laughs> it, 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 it takes time. And I love the narrative behind this for survive, mm-hmm. because if you talk about something like metabolics or aberrantics, mm-hmm. you could lose an arm right? and then, and then literally regrow it back in the span of a round. <laughs> okay. And that's wicked awesome. Yep. It's also worth noting, remember the core difficulty for the power is two purples. So doing mm-hmm. this is a four purple difficulty to yeah. heal a critical. Yeah. And that's, as, as Huli said before, if you're in your downtime, you're typically better off using medicine. Mm. But this is what, when, you're, when you're in an encounter or you don't have <laughs> access to medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, to- 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 totally awesome. Totally awesome. Yeah. Now, the next two, and the next one is brand spanking new. Mm-hmm. And the last, the last one is kind of borrowed from heel. But, right. Yeah. So the next one is revivification. And I'll probably said too many vivas in there. <laughs> but anyway. It was, you did. It was perfect. Revivification. Yeah. Very good. Um, so while the power is active, if the target becomes incapacitated, they may spend a story point to revive at the end of the following round, returning to consciousness at one point below either their strain or wound threshold, whichever threshold was exceeded to cause the incapacitation. And it's a plus two difficulty. Very cool. <laughs> what, do, what do you what do you think of this? I, I really it's a it's story point driven, and we don't really see that that often for additional effects. But it's mm. highly powerful. Yeah, and and it's kind of like an insurance policy. <laughs> Look, it it does have elements of that reviving capacitated that that we see in heal, um, but it's just that little bit better, which uh, which I think is really really cool and really really fitting. Especially if you've sort of like been knocked out for uh, for the count, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've it's like your ultimate. I can see a lot of NPCs using this sort of thing. You know, the PCs go, "Yay, we've killed him!" and all of a sudden, oh, we now have to deal with him, <laughs> or something like that. Like a a troll with this sort of ability would be would be kind of interesting. Uh, so uh, so yeah, no, absolutely fantastic. Suits this down to a T, and it's great. Cool. Uh, the next one is Resurrection. So, uh, again, it's taken sort of from the heal additional effects. Uh, while the power is active, if the target dies, they may spend a story point to return to life at the end of the following round, returning to consciousness at one point below their wound threshold. And the difficulty for this is plus three purple die. Totally fitting. 
totally a last ditch attempt to not have to do up a new character. <laughs> well, and keep in mind, like, so the resurrection ab- uh, additional effect in heal is mm. plus four purple dice, right? But I couldn't, we couldn't do that because the base effect is plus two, is two, right? Uh, purple dice, mm. and so this would max it out. So to to kick this off. Mm-hmm. You gotta, it's a five purple difficulty <laughs> and keep in mind this isn't this isn't reactive none of this is no you, you have to before you die before you go incapacitated mm. you have to take the action to activate the survive power yep get the minor healing and then have that insurance policy in place in case before the end of your next turn you go down mm. Uh, or of course, unless you concentrate and extend it. Yep. So even then, it's it's circumstantial. It's not anything easy, and it costs a story point. <laughs> but the the other thing too, it's also important to note for both revivification and resurrection, mm-hmm. if you go down, whether it's incapacitation or death, mm-hmm. obviously with death, any concentration you're holding ends. Yep. Okay. So literally, assuming you know that that's why it takes place at the end of the next round. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Um, and when you come back up, you're, you're, you're toast. You have mm-hmm. to re-manifest this power all over again. Right. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. And unless you've got it as a, like, signature power or something like that, you've, uh, you know, you can't be adding anything else onto that because you've maxed out at five. And you cannot go over five difficulty for a spell or for, um, you know, or by the rules, it would be a spell. Uh, but for for the for our setting, the it's uh, it's going to be for power. You can't go over that five purple difficulty. So yeah. Um, so yeah, something to keep in mind there. So Chris, my last question with regards to survive is when we've got um, enhance. So uh, enhance is a metabolics only. Okay, correct. Um, and so it's got fast healing and it's got fast recovery in that as well. How does that actually work when you're using the same sort of? Oh, I guess it's a, it's a, you'd be wanting to maintain it if you wanted to that, do it that way, and then you'd have to be spending two maneuvers to to be doing this. But how does that interact? How, did you, when you were sort of like looking at survive, did you sort of go into how the two would interact with each other? Yeah. And and honestly, it's it's highly unlikely that both powers would be used because, as you say, you know, survive is something that you're typically going to want to maintain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, as is enhance, so you you don't want to have no actions, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, you could use survive without maintaining it and just get that healing boost that it initially gives you. Yeah. But again, at two purple difficulty, it's not going to be as much as you think. Mm-hmm. All right? right. And if you want to spend your action to do that, that's fine. And again, as we talked about with enhance. The fast healing capability of enhance, it's not a lot. No. Mm-hmm. It's it's just not. On average, it's going to be one point of wound healing, just one. Yep. That's it. And again, if you're incapacitated mm-hmm. or dead, you lose all concentrations. So that fast healing ends. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it honestly doesn't interact in any overpowering fashion. Right. And if you have a clever player who's able to, who's, who's got, you know, maybe he rolls really well, he or she rolls really well and, and gets a fast healing two or my God, even a fast healing three up, mm-hmm. you know, if they want to spend their action to, you know, heal themselves another three points, mm-hmm. maybe 
from using survive, okay, you've healed another three points. It's no different than, um, quite frankly, it's no different than popping a, a painkiller at that point. Okay. Right. So uh, it really, yeah, it's not a, it's, it's, it's not a, not a huge, you know, action economy bust or overpower bust there mm. at all. And they should be allowed to be used together. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, cool. Also, also keep in mind that whereas magic limits healing to one very, very specific spell mm-hmm. that can accomplish by very specific skills yeah. in a post-apocalyptic environment, especially when you're talking about mutations, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's a little appropriate to provide one indirect and then one in survive case, direct avenue to mutation based healing. Mm. It just makes sense. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So our next power, um, which we have touched base on in a previous episode, as we mentioned earlier, is telekinesis. Yes. Um, so, you know, we've uh, basically our work's already done for us um, and we're going to borrow from that <laughs> from episode eight. That was the one. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're just going to update it to, uh, to use as a mutation power. So it's concentration. Yes, skill is going to be psionics only. So psionic mutants can leverage their abilities to move matter with their minds, hurling objects about and foes with their mere thoughts or performing delicate mental manipulations. The character selects one target, creature or object, up to silhouette one in size within short range, then makes a psionic skill check. The default difficulty of the check is average, though checks targeting a non-minor NPC as per the GM's discretion should be opposed, typically by discipline, though athletics, coordination, or even vigilance may make sense under the circumstances. If the check is successful, the target is immediately moved one range band in a direction of the character's choosing before making a telekinesis check to choose any number of additional effects listed on the telekinesis additional effects table. These effects are added to the check. So, uh, so yeah, so a little bit of flavor there, but pretty much just going to be the exactly the same as what we discussed in episode eight. Uh, so our first effect, which is force. So your character may target a creature or object one silhouette size larger than normal. This may be added multiple times, increasing the target silhouette by one each time. And that's a plus one difficulty for each time that's done. Um, makes sense totally that, yeah, if you want to move that uh, that monstrous mutation that is, uh, you know, the size of half a building, then that's uh, what you'd be basically adding to uh, to the check multiple times. And the next effect is hindered, which is the target suffers one setback die on any skill checks they make until the end of your next turn. In addition, after manifesting the power, you may spend two advantage to force the target to suffer another setback die and may trigger this multiple times, spending uh, two advantage each time. And that increases the difficulty by one. Uh, The next one, which is range, increase the range of the power by one range uh, band. This may be added multiple times, increasing the range by one range band each time. And that's plus one difficulty. And lastly, we have additional targets. So the power affects one additional target within range. In addition, after manifesting the power, you may spend one advantage to affect one additional target within range of the power and may trigger this multiple times, spending one advantage each time with a difficulty increase of plus two. Yep. So, so yeah. And you, 
And you guys can go back and listen to episode eight as we created this spell, yeah. which we're transferring into a power. And we went into all the logic and reasoning behind it at that point in time. Yeah. But uh, a worthy inclusion and mm. less less work for us to have to do now. <laughs> Indeed. So go back and listen to episode eight. And no, we won't. I'm going to wait. We're just going to continue on. Um, <laughs> you can catch up. <laughs> all right. Now, our, our last power mm. is weird. Is it? <laughs> it is. Uh, so, you know, Huli, when we were going through this, we decided that aberrant mutations specifically yep. would often provide this host of small but beneficial mutations in a, in a very weird and strange circumstances. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, as you said earlier, this is the post-apocalyptic muta- mute, uh, uh, mutants version of a utility spell, yep. um, which which obviously we uh, we borrowed from extensively. Yeah. Um, so as a result, the write up doesn't have structured encounter uses and it goes as follows you know weird skills aberrantics only mm-hmm. mutants with aberrant abilities can often manifest strange and baffling physical mutations that can provide small benefits from a narrative standpoint such as altering the color of one's skin or eyes perhaps to something wholly unnatural or bioluminescent growing a crab-like appendage to hold tools developing a marsupial-like pouch to hold things beneath your skin <laughs> sprouting eye or ear stalks or turning your voice into a fearsome growl or a booming cacophony. Basically weird and cool abilities with a minor benefit that reflect a wildly mutated physiology. But these are more akin to tricks than dangerous and powerful mutant powers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, that doesn't mean a clever player can't figure out how to use a weird power to great advantage. Mm -hmm. Um, Weird powers don't have an equivalent action and structured encounters, since the effects are almost entirely narrative in nature. Mm. Um, an aberrantics check to manifest a weird power should always be easy. Mm. If that difficulty seems too easy for what you want to accomplish, then what you want to do is probably beyond the scope of weird powers. Mm. <laughs> so, I don't know. Thoughts on this? Look, I think that, um, I mean, it's a question that uh, that gets asked a lot that I found at, uh, at the table when we're playing Terranoth is that, well, can't we use uh, utility to do stuff during combat? Well, I, I guess it depends on, on what you're really trying to do. Um, and uh, as, the, as, the, as it says, if you're trying to do something greater than an easy difficulty, it's going to be beyond the scope of, of the basic power anyway, and you need to be doing something else. Um, but there are going to be circumstances where things are, you know, are just going to be completely out there, and no doubt all of uh, all of those GMs out there, their players have tried this at least once. Um, that they're going to do something weird. So um, yeah, you know, look at uh, increase the, the difficulty or look at another power completely. Uh, but um, yeah, write up is absolutely brilliant. It certainly sets the theme of what weird is all about in in our minds. So uh, so yeah, I, I love it. It's great. And those in encounter, those structured encounter uses you're talking about for utility, and in this case, weird. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're there. And from a mutation standpoint and an aberrantic standpoint, a clever player could have some fun. And it depends on the situations the GM sets up. You know, mm-hmm. so the the party is broken into a you know, uh, uh, erect and abandoned underground science facility to steal some medical records. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a group of, uh, of nomadic, uh, hungry, 
uh, cannibals that are trying to break through uh, the door to kill them before they can get out. Mm. And the whole party is working on blocking the door and fending these things off. But the technician in the group is like, okay, well, I'm going to go get the records from the computers. Well, there's two computer terminals and it takes two people to activate them. All right. You just don't have enough hands. (laughs) If the player turned to me is like, okay, I literally want to pop two like baby hand appendages out of my stomach and, and go all, you know, you know, uh, (laughs) quato on the, on this. So I literally have enough hands to do this at once. Sure. I mean, and that's a, again, that's a minor benefit. It's very minor for people wanting to know mechanical effects of utility, in this case, weird in a structured encounter. Another great barometer I've always gone with is it can't be better than giving yourself or somebody else a plus one boost die one time on a check they're about to make. Right. Um, it's like, you know, I want to sprout eye stalks. Uh, will that give me a boost die on my perception check I'm about to make? Sure. Mm. Or an ally could just spend a maneuver to assist you and also give you a boost die. But this works too, right? <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's that level of, of capability, yeah. basically. Um, and of course, the most common use for utility and could also be the most common use for aberrantic uh, based weird powers mm-hmm. is uh, luminescence. Yeah. Uh, for magic, for magic, it's a light spell, mm. you know, but for a mutation power, you know, we're underground, we're in the super mutants lair, there's no lights. And all of a sudden the dude's hand just starts glowing, <laughs> right? That's cool. Yep. You know, mm. or, uh, or has a stick and then licks it. And where all of his uh, saliva is all just this glowing sort of mess. That's, that's, that's cool. Yeah. He, <laughs> he hocks up a bioluminescent loogie and pastes it on the end of a stick. Yeah. Yes, that's pretty so. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Look, something else as well, and and I do this in my games, and, and I don't know how, uh, because you've done a lot more magic stuff than than I have, Chris. But uh, sometimes when it comes to this sort of uh, stuff that is just off the wall, um, sometimes it may not necessarily need a roll at all. They it just costs them two strain. When it comes sure. to using light, for example, you know, light is a in. Pathfinder. It is a. It's something that you can do as many times as you as you want. Yeah, it's. Can- so yeah. Uh, so yeah. So using um, light, um, and I've got plenty of uh, one character in particular uh, has uh, wants to use light on the end of their staff. So it is a case of right, fine. Spend the two strain. I'm not going to worry about slowing the game down just for a whole roll. Uh, but uh, if it's something that it, and people are under the pump or whatever else that 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 then will require a roll. So, you know, I know that we said it earlier, but always take a look at, do you need to make a roll or do you not need to make a roll? And with that decision, it always comes down to consequences. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. You know, if they're not under duress and he wants to, to hock his bioluminescent loogie under the end of his sword mm-hmm. made, made from salvaged car parts, <laughs> there's no consequence if you fail. It's like, just do it. I mean, spend yeah. your two straight and do it. If they're in the heat of combat, Mm-hmm. And the lights go out. Yep. And and this guy wants to do it. Well, there's you know, see in the dark mutants that are attacking them. Mm-hmm. Um, damn right, you're gonna make you roll for it because you could fail, and that's gonna add a nice level of complication to what we're what's about to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> but again, it it comes down to you know, is is there a risk for failure? And if not, and it's just one purple, why make him roll? Yeah. So where to from here, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking for a long time. That was a lot of content and, quite frankly, a lot of work. Mm. 
I'm so eager to play test this. I'm so eager to get these on the table. And all of you listeners out there, too, if you want to try out these powers on the table, go for it. Mm. Do it. Go to the website, look them up, get them on the table, give us your feedback. We still have a lot more to do, though, to finish our reskin efforts. Now that we have a general idea of how our reskin will work and we've gone into detail with fully fleshing out our spell actions, a.k.a. powers, Mm -hmm. we have three more steps (laughs) to go in our process of reskin. Step five, which is detailing out your talents, Mm -hmm. which we had... In all transparency, guys, we had intended to do that this episode until we actually got through the spell work. And it was like, (laughs) yeah, they don't want to listen to a five-hour episode. There's just no way. So step five, detail your talents. Mm -hmm. Step six is actually relatively simple, so we'll probably handle five and six in in, in our next episode. Yep. Um, and And that is determine your penalties and your threat despair results. So when it comes to, just like magic, when it comes to our mutation powers... What, if any, penalties are going to apply under certain circumstances? When are setback dice going to matter? Mm. Do you need to have free hands? Do you, does it matter if you're gagged or, or you know any, anything like that? Mm. Wearing heavy armor. And then th- what, are, what are your good threat despair recommendations that you can put in? Because as we know and as we talked about way back in episode eight, um, magic has – and consequently these powers – should have much worse consequences used with threat and despair mm. than your standard combative checks. Yep. And then the last step, step seven, which will honestly be probably a double duty episode entirely on its own, mm-hmm. is defining your implements and your equipment, yep. which we will do uh, fleshing out this setting and, and, and finishing this this mutation power but we'll also spend some time really diving into the overall mechanics from a general perspective about implements and how they work and designing them yeah it's been a big one but uh, hopefully you've um, sat through this if not all in one sitting uh if you have done it in one sitting well done you deserve another gold star uh, but, uh, yeah, that's been really, really helpful, I think. Uh, I know that uh, I've got a lot out of it, and in particular, um, and we may get onto this at some other later time down the track, is talking about superpowers and stuff like that. There's some really good things that are in there, which I think will be of great benefit to that. So, uh, so thank you for doing that. No, of course, of course. All right, so, um, yeah, if you've, um, I mean, obviously, once we get through this, we do have a number of topics that uh, that we have on the slate to do, uh, but if you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss in length uh, in our furnace section, uh, just send us off an email or get in contact with us via social media. But for now, Chris, I believe that we have a very special guest for us uh, waiting in the wings to talk to us about their supplement. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very, very eager uh, to talk to Chris Markham about Terranoth Taverns. Mm. So uh, what do you say we uh, break the mold? Sounds good to me. Breaking the mold. The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators go above and beyond subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering that's available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and we point you, fine listeners, to the best content out there. Now, tonight's guest recently released his very first product to the Genesis Foundry, Terranoth Taverns. This author has become well-known in the Genesis community as the person to go to when it comes to Terranoth. He has literally scoured every inch of the internet, finding whatever he could about what makes Terranoth tick. 
Terranoth Taverns is one of the few Foundry-created titles that aims to provide both fluff and crunch in a toolset designed for the GM running their campaign in Terranoth, or for any fantasy setting for that matter. The author of this supplement is Chris Markham, and he joins us for the first time on this show. Chris, welcome to The Forge. Thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. It's great to finally have you on the show. So, Chris, before we get stuck into the nuts and bolts of Terranoth Taverns, perhaps you'd like to tell us a little about yourself and your gaming career. Um, sure. I've been uh, gaming for about 30 years. And like most, I started with the basic D&D, uh, the old school version, where if you had an elf, it was both a race and a class. <laughs> and uh, later on, went to try different versions of D&D. Um, and other systems like, like Palladium and World of Darkness and Shadowrun and all kinds of too many to mention, mm-hmm. really. But um, I always come back to D and D a lot. But I also uh, really love Genesis because it looks like uh, it kind of is exactly what it describes itself as a narrative dice system, and I really love that about it. That uh, you know, it's not just a success or or fail. It's how good did you succeed or how bad did you fail, mm. um, and that really is cool, uh, especially from like my White Wolf days and things like that. So <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so you you mentioned Chris about Genesis and what you you love about the system mechanically, but we love to ask this of all of our guests: um, what style of game, game setting, or theme do you like to get on the table when you play? Uh, what's your favorite thing to play in Genesis? Terranoth notwithstanding, maybe this is a, <laughs> a, a loaded question. <laughs> right. I mean, my, my go-to is certainly fantasy settings, um, but I also like high-tech settings as well. Like, we played Rifts a lot. And uh, so as long as there's still a little magic thrown in, uh, I'm I'm good. Um, so my, obviously my Genesis passion is Terranoth. Uh, I do a lot of research on it. But uh, I'm also really looking forward to the Keyforge setting. Um, I've already delved into it a bit with uh, the card game that's out. I kind of looked at the lore and tried to kind of piece together the feel of it. And and uh, it's just really kind of cool. It's just really like a mishmash of all kinds of things. So, uh, you know, no matter what anybody wants to play, it's like, well, K-Forge has got it. So mm. <laughs> you want to be a superhero, you want to be a tech guy, you want to be a mage. It's all there. <laughs> so and I've been having fun uh, deciphering the picks on the books, too, um, just to kind of read, see what it, what they're saying and uh I think they think that they blurred it too much that where you couldn't read it, but I can read it, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> now, you say a little bit of research in Terranoth. That, uh, look, I've talked about uh, you on the show before. That's a, that's a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> I think you've scoured every <laughs> single part of the, of the interwebs trying to find something about Terranoth. And, and uh, I know that uh, when I've done research for my own game that I've gone to you to uh, to talk to you about tearing off so uh, so yeah look yeah understatement of the world i think <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm still surprised when i find new stuff but uh it's been a while since the last new thing i found so yeah. i'm still always looking though because <laughs> i didn't even know that there was uh d20 uh material out there for tearing off uh, and you managed to uh, stumble across that. So. Yeah, that was a big surprise to me, actually. I I, uh, I forgot how I stumbled upon it. I think I just came up with one adventure, and then I kind of said, okay, well, it says there's a series of them. So then I started really digging around and, and ended up finding all of them. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, Chris. So, you know, this is your first entry onto the foundry uh, with, uh, with Terranoth Taverns. Give us the pitch. Tell us about this supplement. How would you describe it to someone who was looking to purchase it? Um, well, all too often, if you go to a tavern in a fantasy game, it's pretty bland. It's like, oh, everything starts off at a tavern. Well, long ago in my games, I always really wanted to do something with the standard tavern for my players. So they never really knew what to expect just going into a tavern. So this tool is a way to kind of liven up your taverns and offers four unique settings for it for the GM to kind of jazz this up for the players um, so that they, too, can develop a sense of wonder and awe when going into, you know, just another tavern. So with this product, you get four unique locations, um, the layouts of those locations, all kinds of pictured NPCs, um, at least a couple with each each one of the settings Um, because I'm a very visuals guy. I like to have like the sign of, of each place, <laughs> too. Um, and, uh, you know, Adventure seems to kind of give GMs ideas of how to tie it into their campaigns and their players. Yeah. And, uh, and just under three bucks, it's cheap. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, okay, so, I mean, there's a lot of things that have been coming out for Terranoth. We've seen, I think, more than any other setting so far. We've seen, um, so, you know, some, some strong resources come out, including Adventures. This one is really intriguing. Um in, in terms of we haven't seen anything quite like this yet. What drew you to this? What drew you to doing this style of supplement? I mean, it's, it's got a clear goal and furthermore, a, a pretty clear demographic um, of, of player DM that you're, you're targeting with it. What were you hoping to bring to the table with this? Why this? Well, I, I always hear the complaint that Terranoth is just a generic fantasy world. And for me, you know, I've delved so much into it mm. that I just come up with a much different view of that, of how unique a setting it is. Mm. I mean, sure, some of the lore is pretty common. You know, the idea of a big bad guy and races all getting together to fight the big bad guy. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've found literally hundreds of unique creatures and items in the setting. Um, and these are just, some of them are just a little different, but some of them are way different than any other fantasy game. Mm. And for me, it just really has like a feel all its own. And I really wanted to show that in this product and kind of get into some of the feel of, of different areas of, uh, of Tyranoth. Mm. Now, this supplement includes uh, lots of details for four ready-to-go tavern locations, uh, as you've mentioned. You know, you've got prominent NPCs, maps, layouts, and great stuff like signature drinks, which I absolutely loved. Uh, you know, you've got adventure hooks and in some cases, uh, custom rules for unique engagements. Can you tell us a little bit about what the design process for this was and what what did you know you wanted to include in the book before you even started it uh, and kind of what evolved over time? I'm sure. Well, at any given time, I've always got kind of a ton of projects in my head. Like right now, I think I have about... Uh, 12 that are kind of in the outline stage yep. and at least a couple of them that are more fleshed out uh, in the planning stages. But uh, I decided to make this the first one because uh, the taverns are something I came up when I was first reading the ROT book, the uh, Realms of Terranoth book. Mm. I had these in my own campaign and hadn't really fully fleshed them out yet. And uh, I had all these different characters and I really wanted to kind of visualize these characters. So I asked my daughter Heidi, who's also an artist like myself, and if she'd be willing to draw out my character ideas, as she's better at people than I am. I mean, at least I can do like a photorealistic drawing, yeah. but just kind of quickly bangs a character out. It's really much more her forte. Mm-hmm. So uh, it then kind of evolved tavern by tavern. I had I had the four taverns that I wanted. 
I had the ideas of them, but even like the names and, and the NPCs, I had some of, of that, but then each one kind of developed its own unique personality. Like, um, you know, when I had the Gnomish Tavern, it was like, okay, well, what would they do in a Gnomish Tavern? Well, maybe they would have all these little inventions that would fight each other like robot wars, you know? <laughs> um, you know, what would orcs do in a tavern? Well, you know, they'd probably have drinking contests. <laughs> so, so that kind of thing happened there, from, from there. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. So, okay, maybe you can expand on that because one of the things that I wanted to ask was like for you to give us a glimpse of something exciting or unique um, in Taranoth Taverns to whet our appetites. And, and maybe maybe your example might include some of those unique touches. Um, yeah, like for example, um, one of them is the Silver Chalice. It's basically a snooty upscale restaurant in Tamalier. <laughs> Um, and it caters to the rich. So I, the idea of this was maybe the adventurers are being, you know, wooed by a wealthy person to do a mission, and they've got to kind of dress up to go into this place, or maybe they're celebrating after, you know, doing a mission for somebody like that. And, and this is, you know, this is going to be like obscenely priced restaurant, right? <laughs> um, so I patterned the main person inside to be kind of similar to this duty waiter in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, the one that <laughs> Ferris told he was uh, Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. Um, so if you if you look at the picture, you'll even see that he does kind of have that smirk to him, mm. and uh, and also in the drink offerings, you'll notice there's a very expensive wine, which actually was just briefly mentioned in the ROT book. So I really like to find those little tidbits in the ROT book and and just kind of flesh them out a little bit more. So so that was fun. Very You're very Abe Froman. Yeah, that's me, <laughs> the Sausage King of Chicago. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I can't wait for for a PC to come in and say, well, I'm so-and-so. And you're like, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> you touch me, I yell rat. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, I won't go into, into spoiler territory in any way, shape, or form, but I would have to say that my favorite out of the four is the grog pit because I think that every single party that I've ever had in a fantasy setting, I've always at least got one orc or a half orc. So, uh, yeah, the grog pit is absolutely amazing. I just laughed. This, uh, this, it's just great. I love it. Yeah, that actually stemmed from a uh, stemmed from a a game a long, long time ago with a friend of mine who was a DM, and mm. and we had this really rough orc place, and, uh, and a lot of those kind of things came out from that. So, mm. so it was really fun to tap into that and revisit that. Mm. And I think that you were you took it a little bit easy on uh, one of the difficulties there, but uh, <laughs> with regards to the pit. But anyway, that's a side note. Uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely go and take a look at that if you haven't done so already. So, uh, so want to make it kill them, Huli. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so Chris, this is an absolutely fantastic first outing for you in the Foundry. So what's next for you in the Foundry? You, you said that you had a few ideas that are, uh, you know, swirling around. What's next for you? Um, sure. I, like I said, I do have about a dozen projects outlined, but my next offering is actually going to be very soon, um, hopefully within the next week or so. It's called the Zanagan Bestiary Part 1 mm-hmm. of 2, and it will basically be a, an adversary listing of some unique creatures of Zanaga, um, referenced from some previous games set in Terranoth, mm. and narrated by the same explorer that was in the Zanagan-themed tavern in Terranoth Tavern. Oh, right. And, uh, yeah, and it's Part 1 of 2, because I just have too many unique creatures kind of 
in that area to fit in just one volume. But um, it'll also include descriptions, ecology, and the behavior of the creatures kind of taken from him, you know, describing them. But uh, I'm also um, taking advantage of the new services by uh, offered by some of the former FFG writers. Yeah. And uh, Tim Huckleberry is actually the one assisting me with the layout. Um, so it's really going to have that standard tearing-off look and feel right. um, that my first one didn't quite have just because I buy limited uh, AP skills. <laughs> but uh, the next one is already pretty much banged out. I just need to get him the last pieces of artwork. Yep. So I banged out five of those today. So <laughs> luckily, wow. luckily that should be coming soon. Yeah. And then I just need to finish up the, those last couple pieces of art. I think I got like five to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it should be hopefully about a week or two. I'll have the next one out. Wow. You are a machine. <laughs> I hope so. I have some, all these things I just want to get out. I want to get them done and out. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. You know, I think, I think Mr. Markham, I think Taranoth is a, a brilliant setting that I, I would agree most sadly, not most, I would say many of, of the Genesis RPG players out there may only have limited exposure to a lot of the board games that really started Terranoth and really helped to flesh out so much of that lore. And therefore, I mean, the work you're doing and sort of, there's no other way to say it, keeping this Terranoth setting torch aflame um, and, and, and keeping it burning strong and held high, bringing in a lot of things that you know, RPG players and, and GMs out there who may not be as familiar with the extended lore that can only be briefly touched on in the uh, realms of Terranoth book, um, you know, it really is a tremendous service to the community. And so not only is it good content, man, I think it's just, uh, maybe this is a bit much to say, I think it's a noble venture. Does that make sense? <laughs> so I'm I'm grateful to you for that, sir. Thank mm, you. Absolutely. Oh, very, very welcome. And, um, you know, I've, I've played uh, Descent for, for, for a long time. I played Runebound for a long time. So that's really kind of got me in love with the setting in the first place. Mm. So when the role-playing game came out, I was, you know, I was really on board. <laughs> I was already designing a campaign for it. <laughs> and then the role-playing book came out and it made it a lot easier because now I have maps. <laughs> so that was great. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you very much for coming on the show and, and talking about your wonderful supplement. And uh, I'm sure that the the fans of that supplement are going to be looking forward to uh, your uh, the Beast Tree Part 1 and Part 2. I know that I certainly am. So, uh, so, yeah, thanks very much for coming on the show and talking about that. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a really interesting discussion. Uh, somewhat short, but um, to the point, which I think is uh, is absolutely fantastic. And uh, but look, um, Chris uh, gave me a, a look at that uh, well before its release, and it's um, yeah, I, I love it. I, I love. I've always said that I love creative people, and uh, what he's done there is really unique. And I'd love to see more settings. Or, or more supplement to setting material like that. Uh, it's uh, yeah, and I, I still my favourite is uh, is the Orc Tavern. So go and check that out if you haven't done so already. <laughs> it's well worth it, guys. Well worth it. Mm. And once again, a big thanks to Chris for coming on and uh, talking with us and sharing so much. Yep. Well, speaking of sharing, Hooli, mm-hmm. um, I think we should share the love um, <laughs> and uh, maybe sidle underneath the. What do you say? Sounds good to me. Under the hammer. 
Welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis role-playing game as it impacts rules, content creation and play. Now, some great questions this week with a couple coming from our Patreon supporters. Of course, if you would like to join and get your questions to run to the top of the queue, just visit patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis and become a Tier 2 supporter today. All right, Chris, what's our first question? Oh, my. (laughs) Uh, This first one uh, is a slap on the wrist question from Christopher (laughs) Ruthenbeck, who actually joined us recently on the podcast. He did, yeah. Via Facebook. Mm. And he says the following. In episode 12, you said you could add a new effect to your signature spell from an implement, even if that effect wasn't part of your initial choice. Mm. I don't think that's correct. Could you expand on your reasons for this? Yeah, Ken. And what can we say? Yes, Chris, we made a mistake. <laughs> it was a big one. And it caused a little bit of um, discussion, which is great to have on uh, the Facebook page as well as other social media parts. Um, but um, after a bit of research and a bit of talking with Christopher with regards to this uh, specific problem, we found that um, the rules for this, although you know they make total sense, it's well and truly hidden amongst all of the the rules that we have. So, so let's kind of break down what we've said and what really the rules say. So, um, firstly, we have to look at the signature spell, which is on page eighty nine of the Realms of Terranoth, uh, and it says, "When your character gains this talent, decide on a signature spell for them, consisting of a particular magic action and a specific set of one or more effects." When your character casts their signature spell consisting of the exact combination of action and effects previously chosen, reduce the difficulty of the check by one. By the wording of the talent, you cannot add anything to the spell. Keep that in mind as we go to the next part. So as we look at implements, now the staff, for example, which is on page 209 of the core rules, it says magic staffs almost universally augment the user's ability to cast spells at range. When they are casting a spell, adding the first range effect added to the spell does not increase the spell's difficulty. In addition, attack spells cast by the user increase their base damage by four. So the key words here are adding the first range effect. Because Signature Spell says that you have to cast the spell with the exact combination of effects, you could only use the staff to reduce the difficulty if you had a range effect on the Signature Spell in the first place. Uh, So if there's no ranged effect added to the Signature Spell, you can't gain the benefit of the staff for the first part of it. So, and when I say the first part, the second part, which talks about the damage, because it's not all doom and gloom, the damage from an attack spell would normally, using the staff, would increase by four. This isn't adding an effect to the signature spell at all. So, in my opinion, and I think Chris would agree with me, is that the increase to damage can occur. Absolutely. The the signature spell talent locks down the additional effects, the recipe. That's it. Yep. Damage is not a part of the recipe. If 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 it locked that down too, then oh my gosh, your your intellect has increased. But I'm sorry, you're still stuck with the old intellect for damage purposes when you're casting your signature spell, <laughs> or for that matter, uh, rolling less or more successes also increases and decreases the damage. So no, 
damage doesn't apply there. That that's that's a totally accurate representation. Yeah. You know, and as we were talking about about that with signature spell, mm. you know, we were we were we're like, well, guys, we think this is how it works based on what we've read. But yep. yeah, when you really dig into this, and Christopher, thank you for pointing it out. Um, yeah, yeah, signature spell is, and I'm I'm actually okay with this. Mm. Pretty well locked down. Yeah. Yeah. Keep that in mind um, when you are dishing out to your implements, as far as like if you have it in in a treasure hoard or something like that, that you do keep that in mind. Is that if you've if you're wanting your players to be using it. Make sure that you're considering what they have, if they have a signature spell, what they have in that so that they can actually find it useful. But uh, if you're just wanting it to say, well, there's something different, that um, they, it then becomes a case of do we really need it? Can we sell it? That sort of stuff. So, um, so yeah, something to keep in mind for looking after your players in your, uh, in your campaign as well. Now, our second question is from one of our Patreon Discord supporters, um, which is uh, a chalice, and he asks a really, really interesting question. So, um, in a recent playtest, our characters were engaged in combat where seven to eight setback die were applied to a combat dice pool on both sides due to characters with a high defense and the environment. I find this occurs frequently, especially when high defense combines with concealment. The sheer amount of setback causes frustration for both the players and the GM. It also slowed down combat simply due to both sides not being able to hit anything. Could you provide any advice on how to limit stacking too many setback die while still using the environment in combat encounters? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good question. Mm. Um, let's kind of, let's kind of break it down. Yeah. All right. So he talks about a few things with mm-hmm. environmental effects and cover and defense and mm-hmm. environmental effects. They start on page 110. Now what our cellist is asking about is the environment. And, and it really depends on what kind of environments he's talking about. The mm-hmm. rules specifically cover three types of environment that provide setback to specific checks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So there's obviously concealment, which is darkness, smoke, intervening terrain, you know, thick trees, stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, add between one and three setback, depending on how heavy the concealment is. Mm-hmm. Then there is gravity, which mm-hmm. adds between one and three setback dice. Mm-hmm. Then there is cover, which, listen closely gains defense of one or more setback die. Mm. Now, I want to note that very specifically because it is the odd one out. Cover. It adds defense, not setback. And um, Archelis, defense doesn't stack with armor. Armor is defense. Mm. At any time, if something says adds defense, be careful of the wording. Okay? If the wording says gain gain plus one defense this would add to your defense score mm. okay um you know uh, uh, uh what there are weapon qualities that do this mm-hmm. uh, is, is the best example i can point to yeah. but cover doesn't do that cover adds defense meaning if i have an armor with a defense of one and, a, and i'm behind cover that provides defense of one i don't get defense of two mm. i still only have defense of one mm. okay it, it it doesn't stack and this is explained very clearly and better than I'm doing it on page 105 <laughs> of the core rulebook. Yep. Also, make sure to remember there are two defense types, melee and ranged. Some equipment provides a defense score to one and not the other. So mm. make sure that you know the appropriate defense is being applied to the appropriate attack. Mm. Now also, and I guess lastly, on, on page 104, 
it mentions that most the, the most defense a character can ever have ever is four setback dice. Hmm. So if your characters are fighting in the dark, which is three setback on a planet with high gravity, giving you three setback against a foe in armor with armor defense four, which is insane. <laughs> you technically could have 10 setback dice in your dice pool, right? but that's incredibly unlikely. This is an unusual glut of circumstances, hmm. but just keep in mind when it comes to, to defense specifically, you're limited to four setback dice. And ultimately, I mean, this is the crux of our chalice's question. Hmm. How do you prevent it from getting that high? Hmm. And I mean, ultimately, man, this comes down to, I mean, it's the fault of the GM. Mm. know the defense of your players, know the defense of your threats and don't create an environment in your encounter. That's going to throw five or six setback die into things. So why, <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> Look, the thing is, is that this is the rules, whether we like it or not, you know, the, the number of setback diets, setback die are designed for this factor. And it means that you're not upgrading checks, so you're not going to get despairs and things like that. You can, I guess, if you want to flip a story point, by all means, you know, you could get one. But it's meaning that there's more threat there, potentially, or it's going to be harder to hit. You should be rolling a lot of threat. You can be doing things like affecting the environment. So... Um, I, I guess to, to put it into a Star Wars sense, um, when you look at the, the battle between Rey and Kylo in Force Awakens, you can imagine that, I mean, the planet's basically falling apart, so you've potentially got some gravity stuff in there. You've got cover because you're in the forest. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of semi-dark as well, so you're dealing with that. Um, and then suddenly you, oh my God, I've rolled 10 threat. Well, suddenly the Earth parts between you and you now have this massive chasm between you you're using the setback die and the the results of those to create something within the environment that is going to make it more of a set piece and if the characters want to keep on battling that that's fine but the other thing to look at as as um, Archelis has said as far as the uh, the frustration with with characters uh, with players sorry that the GM, uh, the responsibility of the GM is also to manage the table. And if, and if he or she can see that the players are getting frustrated, move it along, withdraw the enemy, you know, um, potentially turn it more into a narrative encounter that, um, you know, the, the, you're realizing that things aren't happening the way that they should and you need to potentially be running away. And then you start looking at maybe suddenly having it turn into a skill challenge as well. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Look, I don't, I don't know how the situation occurs. How in God's name <laughs> do you ever get to a situation where there's six or seven setback die on a roll? Right. I mean, how, how, I, I, I don't say he said, what did he say? He said seven to eight, seven to eight setback. I mean, look, concealment providing setback. Yep. 90% of the time is going to be one setback die. Okay. Mm. And that's for darkness. Mm. Two setback die is like deep darkness, deep mm. darkness, or like mist or like heavy foliage. Three setback die should be reserved for Victorian era London fog suit <laughs> that, that you literally can't see more than 24 inches in front of you mm. okay mm. that's three levels of stuff so honestly concealment's going to give you one maybe two mm -hmm. all right cover and armor there's no way on god's green earth you're ever going to have a four 
I mean, worst case scenario, you're going to average out at two. Mm. Okay. So now we're looking at three or four setback dice. Mm. And that should be the max. If if the GM is throwing gravity into that as well, I mean, I'm sorry. This is just that that's that's ridiculous. <laughs> and honestly, if you if you have a situation where you've got cover that's going to and 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 armor that's going to increase defense ratings substantially, hmm. as a GM, I can say, oh gosh, it's dark without without making it. Okay, I'm sorry. The rules say it's dark. You suffer a setback. I mean, it's your call as a GM hmm. to do that. Yep. Just don't, just don't do that. <laughs> like, like, why are you locked into what these rules suggest under these certain circumstances when you have complete control over one of the circumstances and two, how the circumstances manifest? Mm. Like, like, like as a GM, that's, that's just, you know, and Huli, to build on the point you just made, you talk about, you know, well, if it's that hard, try and leave or, you know, use the threat. I'm still stuck on the fact that it's that hard to begin <laughs> with. That should never happen. Look, it, it it may very well be uh, an issue with the rules themselves. And this is one of the things that I love about Genesis and, and Star Wars before it, is that you have that setback die is easier than remembering 40 different plus twos, minus twos that we have in something like Pathfinder. Sure. So it, it, it does make it easier. But uh, look, there is a reason why they decided to put a, uh, a ceiling on cover or on defense, sorry, of, of four, because they know that for a, for a start, a, a dice pack only comes with two setback die. <laughs> so from a marketing perspective, that's one thing. Um, and, you know, they recommend that you always have two sets of, of dice. So four is the most you're, you're going to have in, in your dice pack. So, you know, going beyond, beyond that, you need to start... It, it needs to, as you said, Chris, it needs to be about uh, the GM sort of going, why are they putting this many setback die in the first place? But it's also on the players to be going, you know, do we need to be constantly, you know, going at this where we're frustrated? They have to take a certain level of responsibility themselves for their own enjoyment of the game. Um, so it can be something simple as saying to the GM, look, nobody's hitting. Is it possible that we turn this into more of a, as I said before, more of a skill challenge or something like that? Um, if they want to go by the letter of the rules, where all of these defense dice and all of these just generally setback dice can be added to the pool. So if nobody's having fun, you need to be adjusting it. And as I've said in the past, we're not playing for sheep stations. I know that's very Australianism, but... You know, if the players are doing a little bit of damage and the and the NPCs aren't, move the combat somewhere else and say that, you know, the you've fought your way further into the dungeon and now you're in a much larger area and change the environment so that it is fun for people. And that's the that's the, the realm of the of the GM to make things interesting for their players. You're you're so nice. You're so <laughs> kind. Um um uh, Archellis I want you to pause the podcast right now and get your GM and have him listen to what I'm about to say. Mr. GM, whomever you are, we're all improving. We're all learning. We're all getting better. If you are putting your players into a situation that you know is going to give them anything more than three or four setback dice on their check reliably, stop. Don't put them in that situation don't put them in that environment. Don't apply the condition. 
whatever it is. Mm. Okay. Environmental and cover and concealment should only ever really be giving one or two setback die. Because let's also talk about another way you can get seven to eight setback die on a check, not consistently, but a check. And that is through the applicable use of threat, mm. which can start stacking setback die up on a check. But again, it only applies to one check, but you got to account for that. Okay. Mm. So just don't, don't do that. Mm. Just don't do that. Here, it's <laughs> to me. If you've got a problem, you can email me. We'll have our emails at the end of the show. You can email me. Go on the Discord. You can talk. You can talk to me. You can talk to me. I'm, 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 I'm here. But that is, I don't, I don't want to be rude to the GM. That is, mm. that is, and who knows how experienced he is. We're all yeah. still learning, right? Absolutely. But yeah. that, 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 but, it, but if that's a pattern and he sees nothing wrong with it, that's mm. not responsible GMing. Yeah. And if he's doing it because the rules say you're not yeah. playing the right system. No. Yeah. Well. Hopefully that answers your question, Archelis, um, in a in a long winded uh, way. But um, yeah, so yeah, very interesting question. I I loved that as soon as it was posted. So um, yeah, glad we got to uh, to discuss that on the show. Really, really good question. Mm. Really good. Mm. Well, Huli, mm. unfortunately, this brings us to the end of yet another lengthy, meaty, <laughs> juicy show. And so it does. But we'll be back in just a couple of weeks for another amazing episode where we'll be tackling a topic that is hotly debated and one that I and others have done a lot of work on to make a fantastic element of storytelling to make it into your games. That's right. For our next episode, listeners, we shall be taking on the arduous task of a deep dive into the vehicle rules. Mm, That's right. And this will be the first of a series of episodes um, going along the same sort of lines as we've done for Magic uh, because it seems to be very popular and it gives us time to really take a deep dive into the rules. Um, And, uh, you know, we'll be covering everything from what do all the stats mean, how to build vehicles, how to modify vehicles. We'll be uh, begging and borrowing from other systems. How can they operate in combat with uh, with vehicles? What skills to use, and so much more. And who knows? Maybe we might have a special guest or two on those shows as we do the series. Huh? huh? <laughs> I think so. Cough, cough. Keith Cappell. Cough, cough. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, as Chris says, we'll come to that. And while you wait for the release of that episode, please continue to send us any other questions that you might have about Genesis, being a GM or player, or just any gaming-related questions you like. And how can they do that, Chris? Well, they can email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or post it up via one of the many social media platforms that are proliferating our headspace, (laughs) including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and even Reddit. Just search for at forgegenesis. Also, we've been having some really good convos on the D20 Radio Discord channel and, of course, truly dedicated, personalized, one-on-one conversations with the brilliant and beautiful people. Did you know you become brilliant and beautiful, (laughs) Huli, just by becoming one of our patrons? No, I didn't, Um, but I'm glad I do now. Yeah, (laughs) you do now. And it's because our patrons have access to a dedicated Patreon podcast Discord server Mm. where they can chat with other patrons and, most importantly, us. (laughs) Absolutely, they do. And uh, we would love to hear from you all. Don't forget that you can also join the even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group where all of us nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. 
And don't forget to give us a like or follow us as well on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites or we would love on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes and even Spotify. Mm. You can also visit our website, as we've said, at ForgeGenesis.com. And that's a wrap for us. That was a big episode. (laughs) So, but thanks for... um you know, staying with us and for listening. And thank you to everybody who's been downloading our uh, our episodes uh, since we began. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, so thank you very much for your support and for listening. And we hope that you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm Jim Hooley. May your triumphs be many and your despairs be few. And I'm Jim Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good games. Thanks again for joining us, and remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains the property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com.